this is difficult territory. The trickster is neither black nor white. It's not young. It's not old. It's not male. It's not female. It's not good or bad. And it probably dances good, just like Michael Jackson. Ladies and gentlemen, we And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Very excited to be unleashing this week's edition of the program on you, because it is a compelling conversation I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that you're probably going to want to listen to this one a second time around after you hear it, because it is some mind-blowing stuff. Before I get into the preview of what you're about to hear, first let me throw a little plug-in for BOA 2.0. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, or at the very latest Friday afternoon, we will have made the transition to BOA 2.0 in a full fashion at BanalofAmerica.com. So if you have not checked out the BOA 2.0 beta page that we've been running at BOA for the last six weeks or so, you're going to get a chance to really explore BOA 2.0 in a big way because it is taking over banalofamerica.com. i got to tip my hat here and give a huge thanks, of course, to our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. He's the guy that really did all the work here for BOA 2.0. He is an enormously talented web producer. And when I was looking for someone to help me out and redesign Banal of America, he not only took the ball and ran with it, he scored a touchdown in a huge way. So I want to give a heartfelt thanks to Jeremy Boston, our webmaster, for doing an outstanding job in the redesign of BOA 2.0. Now let's get down to business here and preview this week's edition of BOA Audio. As I said, it is really quite an episode, my friends. Our guest is cutting-edge esoteric researcher Christopher O'Brien, and he's going to be joining us for discussion on his relatively new book, Stalking the Tricksters, came out this past fall, and it is an examination of the nebulous trickster phenomenon. Normally we give you sort of a point-by-point preview of what you can expect here in the conversation, but this episode really sort of started out along those lines, and then quickly moved into more of a jam session style of interview as all these different little side roads and side tangents came out throughout the conversation. We went over two hours, and by the time the interview was over, I was stunned by how fast it went. It was that engaging. We'll start by trying to pin down what exactly the trickster is, both in a classically defined sense as well as O'Brien's new view of what the trickster just might be. Then we're going to talk about the different types of tricksters, people as tricksters or using the trickster energy for their own means, the marginalization of the trickster phenomenon by mainstream religion. That segues into some discussion on the need to examine the esoteric from outside the box, the melding of mainstream science and the occult, the importance of blood in different paranormal realms, 
humans supplying the trickster with technology now in this contemporary age, and a host of other really thought-provoking topics concerning this very mysterious and controversial esoteric phenomenon that is the trickster, with Christopher O'Brien, author of Stalking the Tricksters. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Christopher O'Brien, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. From 1992 to 2002, Christopher O'Brien investigated over 1,000 paranormal events reported in the San Luis Valley, located in south-central Colorado slash north-central New Mexico. Working with law enforcement officials, ex-military, ranchers, and an extensive network of skywatchers, he documented what may have been the most intense wave of unexplained activity ever seen in a single region of North America. His 10-year investigation resulted in the three books of his Mysterious Valley Trilogy, The Mysterious Valley, Enter the Valley, and Secrets of the Mysterious Valley. His meticulous field investigation of UFO reports, unexplained livestock deaths, Native American legends, cryptozoology, secret military activity, and the folklore found in the world's largest alpine region has produced one of the largest databases of unusual occurrences gathered from a single geographic region. He is currently working with a team of specialists installing a high-tech video surveillance and hard data monitoring system in and around the San Luis Valley. His latest book, Stalking the Tricksters, has just been released by Adventures Unlimited Press. This controversial book distills his years of field investigation and research into an ingenious, unified paranormal theory that is sure to create intense interest and controversy. His website is www.ourstrangeplanet.com. Pretty simple, all one word, ourstrangeplanet.com. Check it out for more information on Stalking the Tricksters and the Mysterious Valley Trilogy. And now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 13th, 2009. Christopher O'Brien, talking about the trickster phenomenon on BOA Audio, Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Very excited about this week's edition of the program. I think it's going to be a heady discussion here and really uh, paradigm shifting in a lot of ways. Our guest is Christopher O'Brien. He's the author of the mind-blowing new book, Stalking the Tricksters, Shapeshifters, Skinwalkers, Dark Adepts, and 2012. Really tries to uh, give a thorough look at the trickster phenomenon, which up until uh, I picked up this book, obviously other folks had written books about tricksters in the past, but really uh, seemed like it's undergoing a renaissance, if you will, the trickster, and, and people are really starting to take a second look at it. And Christopher O'Brien's come along and really put all this stuff together into stalking the tricksters and tried to crystallize the trickster phenomenon because it's so on the peripheral of the esoteric. It's like part of the fabric, though, of the esoteric. It's very confusing. It's like black and white at the same time. It's 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 really uh, a challenge to wrap your mind around. But that's why we've got him here on the show to really dig into the tricksters. I got to commend him for the book. It's thorough. It's amazing. It covers all sorts of different avenues and genres of esoterica. It's just unbelievable. Those of us who are in the know in esoterica are familiar with his other work, his previous groundbreaking work covering the Mysterious Valley. He authored uh, three books, the Mysterious Valley Trilogy. The Mysterious Valley is the first book. Enter the Valley is the second book. And the final book in the trilogy is Secrets of the Mysterious Valley. And as I said, the new book, Stalking the Tricksters, 
You can find out about all this stuff at his website, ourstrangeplanet.com. Check that out, and he's telling me now that you can get autographed copies of Stalking the Tricksters from ourstrangeplanet.com. So, Christopher O'Brien, welcome to BOA Audio. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's great, Tim. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I really enjoy your show. I've been diving through your archives here in the past few months, and you know, you're one of the bright shining lights out there in uh, in this particular realm. And it's uh, really a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks, I appreciate that. Now, I sort of gave folks a little background here on the Mysterious Valley trilogy, but let's sort of dive in, you know, to the bio background on Christopher O'Brien. You know, how'd you get involved in the esoteric? How'd you get interested in it? And talk a little bit about, you know, your previous work in the Mysterious Valley and then how that evolved into what we're talking about today, stalking the tricksters. A little setup material, yeah, is is uh, is, is kind of important so people know exactly um, how I arrived at some of these, uh, I would like to think, uh, insightful conclusions. Um, you know, I spent a lot of years in, in back east in, in New York City and a couple of years in the Boston area in Somerville, uh, close to your, your stomping grounds. And I got, you know, at, at one point I just got tired of, uh, you know, not being able to see the horizon, not being, you know, able to see anything but steel and glass. And and so I decided to move back out west. And I ended up in a, a very remote area of North America that not many people are familiar with. Um, it's called the San Luis Valley. Uh, in the Colorado portion of it, but geologically the valley goes from Taos, New Mexico, uh, which is in north central New Mexico, north about 150 miles up into Colorado, and it's roughly a football-shaped alpine valley that's the largest alpine valley in the world. Um, the average height of the valley floor is at 7,000 feet, and it's completely surrounded by towering mountains. On the east side, you have the the longest continuous mountain range in North America, the Sangre de Cristos, and there's seven peaks over 14,000 feet. Um, I lived two miles from three 14,000 feet mountains that went <laughs> pretty much straight up from, from my backyard. <laughs> and when I arrived there, um, I was 60 miles from a nearest stoplight supermarket, uh, movie theater. Oh, wow. Store. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a very remote area. There's one person for every seven square miles. It's one of the poorest areas in North America, um, per capita. When I got there, the average income was less than $9,000 a month. And, uh, <laughs> when I visited several months before I actually ended up moving there, I, I remember thinking to myself that this place is like literally carnivorous. They'll just eat you up and spit you out. And, yeah. as I found out later, um, even though three regional groups of Native Americans overlap the valley, it's the only spot in North America that was shared by three regional groups of Indians, they all thought anyone that wanted to live there was crazy. And I guess at 40 below with a, a teepee and moccasins, I guess you probably would have to be crazy to live there year-round. But um, um, I spent a couple of years trying to you know, make a go of it there. Uh, uh, there's a quality of silence there that is I've never heard anywhere else uh, that I've been. There's a roaring silence. Um, there's a, a, a real deep sacredness uh, to the area, not only in the Native American traditions, but in a lot of the people that live there. They do consider the place very special and sacred. Um, there's a real uh, reluctance of the locals to really um, talk about many of the things that, that occur there. And early on, uh, in the early 90s, I began to realize that that this was uh, probably America's most anomalous region. In 92, I started an investigation, just innocently enough, to write a little article for my local newspaper about some UFO sightings. And 
you know, I started uh, doing some research, and I found out within two weeks that I had enough material for a, a really compelling book. And I found that this particular region of the country has the highest incidence of, uh, of anomalous events, a variety and intensity of unusual events that's, I think, unrivaled anywhere in North America. And uh, I just started, you know, in, and 13 years later, um, I logged over a 1,000, you know, uh, paranormal, military, cryptozoological, ufological, cattle mutilations. Uh, the litany of things that I investigated is endless. Yeah. Um, and I logged quite a bit of information, uh, which, you know, resulted in the three books. But um, I do really have a sense that that Petri dish, as I kind of delineated the actual valley itself, I put binders on it and said, I'm only going to look at what happens in this particular valley. But unlike most researchers who, like, get caught up into a single subject, you know, I looked at everything that happened in there that was unusual, whether it was weather, societal events, ritual crime, um, weird military activity, all sorts of unusual sightings of uh, crypto creatures and UFOs and all the other things that I mentioned. So my my database, which is quite voluminous, um, includes all the very interesting attendant phenomena that were uh, occurring there um, in eb ebbing and flowing through the 92 through 99 that six-year period, especially seven-year period, was just it's super intense. Probably the, the the most intense wave of anomalous activity documented in North America. Now, you say you sort of like just started writing a little article about this stuff. Were you always interested in the esoteric, or was it something like when you got out there, you were like, you know, it opened up a whole new avenue of, you know, interest for you? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um I actually, uh, you know, without going into too much detail, I'm, I'm, I'm an experiencer. I've had some pretty riveting events that have occurred, uh, you know, in my life uh, prior to moving there. And uh, I've always known that um, there's something way more complex and exciting and, and just compelling going on in our reality than, you know, what our culture is trying to program us uh, to believe. And, you know, I've always had an interest in these subjects. Obviously, uh, living in Manhattan, this is not subject matter that you bring up at cocktail parties. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I was pretty close to the vest, uh, uh, I think, with, with a lot of, you know, this information that I was interested in. Um, of course, some close friends have always known that I've been, you know, really in, interested in this stuff. But, um, no, I didn't really have any preconceived uh, agendas moving to the Valley. It was only when I found out that, uh, you know, half my town practically saw these uh, particular large uh, UFOs fly over uh, the town, which I unfortunately wasn't able to see. I forget where I was, but uh, I didn't actually experience that particular event, but many people did. And and it, it really began in, innocently. I, was, I had a New Year's Eve party. I lived in a town of less than 200 people, and about 30 of them were at my house for a New Year's Eve party, December 31st, 92. And... I went through the house, and there were little knots of people talking, and I would listen in, and they seemed to be talking about the same UFO sighting, and none of them realized that other people really had seen this. And that's when I started doing my interviews and, and researching, and uh, within two months, I was on national TV. So oh, wow. <laughs> I, don't, so I don't know, you know. It's just one of those weird sort of uh, serendipitous things, you know. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. As you've sort of like established here now, so you're in the mysterious valley, you're looking at all these different phenomena and stuff. What led you then to tackle the tricksters? Because it's such a 
difficult subject to try and, you know, wrap your hands around. I mean, this is a, a brave book in a lot of ways because you could have easily just sat on your laurels and kept writing mysterious valley books, you know, until until the end of time. People would have enjoyed them and loved them and, you know what I mean? Like, like you said. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can really boil it down to, to one, one particular incident. Uh, I was, um, you know, in that first two-week period after my New Year's Eve party when I was researching uh, this little article, um, you know, the first thing I did, of course, was contact my local county sheriff because at the party, people were talking about these UFO sightings. And what really set the hook in me was somebody saying, oh, that was the same night that they had a cattle mutilation down two counties south of us. And that really got me, uh, got my juices boiling. And, uh, of course, the first thing I did was I contacted my local county sheriff and said, hey, do you guys have any files on cattle mutilation that, you know, unofficially had never really occurred. There were no documented cases of cattle mutilations, uh, you know, especially in the 70s when there were hundreds in the valley. Um, but for some re reason, Sawatch County, where I lived, didn't didn't appear in any databases. So I asked the county sheriff this, and he said, well, we don't even have files on human murders that took place back then. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a huge county, bigger than, uh, you know, Connecticut, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's pretty rural and backwards. So... Uh, much to my surprise and, and delight, he uh, showed up at my house a couple, three days later with a handful of photographs. And there were 24 of them, and only two of them had any writing on the back. But I was able to locate the deputy who was invest the chief investigator of these cases. These were back in the, in the 70s, uh, 75, 76. And he was able to help me identify you know, who owned the animals, uh, pretty much when they occurred, the cases occurred, and I, I started a methodical process of contacting the ranchers and, and getting background information on the cases, which were, at that point, were never officially even reported, uh, you know, to the mutilation investigators back then, Linda Howe, Tom Adams, uh, David Perkins, yeah. and others. So I went ahead and, and uh, went out to uh, my first uh, case, if you will, uh, I went out and talked to the rancher who lived in the town next to mine, and she, uh, Virginia Sutherland, she, um, you know, 13 years after after her bull was mutilated, she told me the story and said her family was sitting there at the dinner table, and they heard this helicopter fly really low over their house. And they were out in the middle of the valley, so there was no real trees or any any sort of uh, uh, relief or anything around them, and, and they thought it was kind of unusual to hear a helicopter so low. And then about 20 minutes later, they heard it again going back the direction it had originally come. And so they ran outside, and they saw this this 1950, 1951 uh, era uh, bird, like you see on the opening sequence of MASH, you know, a TV show, yeah. fly over their house. And it had this weird sort of mustard yellow color. And they thought it was really bizarre to see this antique helicopter fly over their house. So the next morning, they went out to, to check on their livestock, and they found their prized seed bull mutilated uh, less than a mile from their house, where the helicopter seemed to be coming from. So obviously, they were pretty upset about this. They called all the airports and, and mechanic, aircraft mechanics and rental places and, and tried to find out where this yellow helicopter came from. And they were laughed at. You know, everybody they talked to said that you must be mistaken. They, these things are in museums. They, they, nobody flies these things. They're astronomically expensive to operate. Uh, they only have a 90-mile range in, in terms of their fuel, and and that they must be mistaken. But they swore them down. Hey, this is what we saw. So I'm interviewing them in January '93, and they're talking about a case that occurred in June uh, 1980. And so I go home uh, after interviewing the family, and the next morning I'm typing up my notes. And I hear a thump, 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 thump sound. And I look out my window, and 
1950-51 Whirlybird yellow helicopter flew right over my house. And when that event occurred, I knew instantly that I was involved in investigating something that was not extraterrestrial, that it was not something off-planet, that it was something highly tricksterish. And to me, it was so compelling and so exciting to have that experience, this yeah. validation of something totally beyond my comprehension occur to me personally. And that's... uh you know, if I had been nibbling on the bait up to that point, that's when the, the hook got set. And, uh, you know, I've been flopping on the, the end of the fishing line ever since. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was it, man. From then on, I, I did a complete about face of my thinking. You know, I went into this thing, you know, early on thinking, oh, these, it must be aliens. Uh, you know, they're coming from other planets and they're emulating our cows and abducting people and, conducting these weird medieval experiments and blah, 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 all this pop, pop culture programming, like this movie, The Fourth Kind, and, you know, the V, this new TV series, a remake uh, of the TV series. And, you know, I went into it thinking that, that, you know, this is all ETs. And when that helicopter event occurred to me, I instantly knew that we were dealing with something infinitely more complex but most importantly, we were dealing with something that is a closed system phenomena. Closed system phenomena? Correct. In other words, this is all Gaia-based. This is closed system. This is this planet generating phenomenal events for some particular agenda, for some reason. There, you know, I got a sense that there was a non-human intelligence involved, but I didn't, you know, I instantly grokked or I in instantly understood that we were dealing with something that we were probably manifesting. Uh, collectively, and that's what really started me on, you know, on that path of looking for um, an alternative theory uh, to para to explain paranormal phenomena that that didn't involve uh, something outside of this closed system. Now, I'm not saying that the trickster, which we'll get into obviously in the interview, but I'm not saying the trickster is a, is, a, is an exclusive, you know, uh, unified field theory to explain everything. I think that there's probably multiple aspects to this, obviously, but I think a major component, uh, a, a sizable chunk or a sizable causal uh, force for many, if not most, of these phenomenal events, which we will be discussing, I think it's something closed system that we are manifesting collectively, and obviously we'll get into that. It's going to be kind of hard, but let's try and sort of pin down and define the trickster element, if you will, for people that are following along with us and they're going to try and, you know, mm -hmm. keep up with what we're going to be talking about here. Let right. me sort of give a, a really thumbnail look at sort of how I sort of picked it all up from the interviews cool. I've heard you've done and, and from this your... This is going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And from, cool, man. All right. Well, I guess... Taking notes. This is the way I've interpreted it, and, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, okay. the trickster, despite the name is sort of less an entity and more of sort of a force or a feeling, and then it manifests itself in various ways depending on who's observing it. It may come from people, and it may just be some other outside, like, force, almost as if, uh, you know, some interdimensional thing or something, you know, that we don't quite understand yet, but we may be able to wrap our mind around eventually. That's kind of, I guess, my thumbnail definition. Right. That, so. that would be a good, a good um, sort of a general thumbnail uh, sketch of, of, of what, how, how to define a trickster. You know, the trickster is, 
you know, I think the best place to start really examining the trickster is to look at Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. Carl Jung was the star pupil of Sigmund Freud. Freud, of course, is famous for coming up with the, the whole idea of the ego, the, the id and the superego and the, the human unconscious. He's the first one to recognize the, you know, the, the immensity of, of, of the human mind and, um, and, and the sublimated portion of the human mind. And what, what Jung did was say, well, if each of us individually has this unconscious, then, you know, it stands to reason that collectively we all share a super amorphous collective unconscious. And within that collective unconscious are very distinct, vibrant symbols or, or archetypes, mm-hmm. um, as he, he borrowed the term and, and used it uh, to explain his concept. And, of course, archetypes uh, range from the shadow, the anima, the animus, the hero, the god, the goddess, um, you know, the, the trickster, the child, uh, the mandala, transformation of self. There's a whole um, litany of, of collective symbols that it doesn't matter where you are on the planet, uh, in what culture or subculture that you, you exist in, you share these very basic primal archetypal symbols with everyone else on the planet. And, and they all sort of burble in this subconscious, uh, collective unconscious cauldron. And when it manifests into our individual cultures, doesn't matter where we are, uh, Australia, Africa, Europe, uh, North America, wherever, wherever it manifests, we are the ones that put the details on the manifestation. In other words, it is a force, but it's manifesting into our particular subculture, and we are the ones that put the details on it. We name it. We, we say what it looks like. We, we ascribe it certain um, attributes. We say it has certain powers. And one of the things that I found out very early on is there's a correlation of interpretations of the trickster all around the planet. The trickster is a force. It's a manifestation from the collective unconscious. Now, the trickster was a very important symbol for thousands of years in human culture. And it wasn't until about seven, 8,000 years ago that we had the rise of urbanized culture, the toppling of a matriarchal system uh, by a patriarchy, and then... 2,000 years ago, then we had the toppling of a pantheistic system of belief in gods and goddesses and a monotheistic view of God that emerged. And when that monotheistic, uh, you know, patriarchy emerged 2,000 years ago, they subjugated the trickster. And the trickster became sort of marginalized and shoved off into the, to the corner. Now, there are three different types or classifications of tricksters. And um, this is kind of my generalized explanation. The most primal version of the trickster is an anthropomorphized animal form. And generally, these animals are special in that they're able to change Gaia in some way that helps benefit humankind. For instance, raven uh, in the Native American tradition in the, in the Northwest, um, raven brought daylight to humanity to help humans uh, ha- live a better life. Coyote is, is an animal trickster that um, is involved in the creation myths of many of the uh, southwestern Indians. Um, you can go all around the world and look at animal forms. Anansi, the spider in the uh, African tradition, brought some of the sacred stories down from the heavens and gave them to humans. So you have that primordial anthropomorphized animal form that um, is the most ancient trickster. The next classification is the tragic hero. 
that would be like like Prometheus of the Greek pantheon of, of myths and legends. Prometheus stole fire from Zeus and gave it to humanity so that humanity could be bettered. And as a punishment, Zeus chained him to a rock and had his liver uh, pecked out by Zeus's, uh, by Zeus's eagle. Maui is one of the kapas, which is a, a Polynesian Hawaiian trickster form. Maui pushed the sun higher in the sky to allow for a longer growing season and to allow humans to, uh, you know, to have enough food and grow enough food to survive. Smoking mirror in the, the, the Aztec Mayan tradition um, created land, uh, drained the oceans enough so that land would emerge so that humanity had a place to live. It doesn't matter where you go on the planet, you have this tragic hero form. The third and most, most uh, prevalent, I think, and most um, the trickster form that I think people will identify with the most is the shamanic trickster form. Now, the most obvious version of that would be dressing up in a costume as a little kid and going out and going trick-or-treat or putting a mask on and going to a, a, a costume party or the, the court jester or the holy fool in medieval Europe. Oftentimes, the king, fed up with the, the bad advice from the wise men, would rely on the advice of the fool. Mm-hmm. Because the fool tended to make more sense and didn't tell him what, what he wanted to hear, told him the truth. You have also cultural shamanic traditions that exist to this day. You have clown societies and trickster societies and indigenous cultures all over the world. They appear during very solemn, very you know special rituals and ceremonies that the people conduct. And they tell jokes, we make ridiculous off-color uh, non-sequitur remarks, keep the atmosphere from becoming too serious. And these clown societies are also uh, in charge with making sure that the culture carries on the oral tradition of their most sacred knowledge. Also, you have shamanic uh, forms that have been marginalized by humans in a parasitic way. The trickster is amoral. The trickster's like a three-year-old. It doesn't know right from wrong. Yeah. In other words, when your little three-year-old nephew bangs his sister over the head with a baseball bat and everybody gets all upset, he doesn't realize that it was wrong. That's what a trickster is. A trickster is an amoral force. Also, uh, you know, tricksters, if you really want to get down to it, tricksters are in the classic anthropological sense. In other words, the Carl Jung and Paul Radin and these people that, that first studied the trickster in the late 19th century and early 20th century, they all agreed that the trickster is a static form, that it doesn't evolve. And they all agreed that it's not conscious, that it's unconscious, it's not self-aware. What I've done with my book is I've refuted those very um, cut-and-dried you know, interpretations of, of the trickster, basically because I, I, we live in an evolving universe, and, and in my mind, nothing can be static. Everything is evolving. And if the trickster is evolving... It's evolving into becoming self-aware and into becoming conscious. So those are the three basic types of tricksters. And, of course, we'll talk about human tricksters, um, which are <laughs> the most prevalent of all trickster forms in, in the modern age. We'll talk about those later. But, but for the sake of a definition, I know it was kind of long-winded, but this is difficult territory. The trickster is neither black nor white. It's not young. It's not old. It's not male. It's not female. It's not good or bad. And it probably dances good, just like Michael Jackson. <laughs> like all those 
you blew away some of my notes here because uh, you, you beat me to a lot of the things <laughs> I was going to mention, but that's fine. Yeah, I kind of held back a little bit on my thumbnail definition because I didn't even want to touch on how you're breaking this new sort of ground in, in the sense that you're talking about how previously the idea of the trickster was that it was you know not self-aware, not conscious, and not evolving, but you're saying that it does evolve and it is conscious. Do you think that it's been conscious like all along, or it's this is some no. kind of new development? No, I think it's a new development. Um, the trickster's main job is to supply change and anti-structure to static systems. And it does this inadvertently. It does it almost by accident. It, it, it doesn't understand that that's what it's doing, but the results of its actions supply change and novelty to static structure. So in other words, when a trickster gets involved in a situation, basically it's generally when the situation has become stuck in the mud and it needs to, to evolve and needs to move forward. And the trickster is the force that is introduced into the situation that then creates the change. It topples the structure and helps pull us forward in our, in our development. And, uh, and that's a really important point. And I, I don't think the trickster, um, in answer to your question, I don't think the trickster for the most part, has been aware, has been evolving. But I think because the trickster's main role is to supply anti-structure and one of the sub-roles is to supply technology to humans, as I described before, I think we've become so evolved as a, you know, as a conscious um, collective in terms of humanity has become so evolved that I think we're pulling the trickster along with us. And instead of the trickster needing to supply us with technology, I think the reverse is now happening, that we are supplying the trickster with technology. Yeah. And once you start looking at that, that's like, you know, at the end of our conversation here, we'll talk about the implications of that. But but no, I, I don't think the trickster has been conscious and has been evolving. I think this is a fairly recent development. Interesting. Okay. All right. So for lack of a better analogy, you know, the trickster, if you're thinking of it sort of like the way the old school academics looked at it, it was almost kind of like the wind. For lack of a, like I said, for lack of a better, for lack of a better analogy, you know, it's instituting change, but it's really not aware. It's just wind. Right. But now we're talking about, you know, wind that is sentient. A breath. There you go. <laughs> that's a really good. That's a good analogy, man. I, I got. I'm going to steal that one. Go for it. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. Up until now, that you know, up until fairly recently, the trick has just been wind. And wind doesn't blow. It sucks, by the way. Most people don't know that. But I think the trickster has now become uh, the breath of an agenda. Oh, I, I like that. Yeah. I like that. We should team up. There you go. <laughs> um, let's sort of like uh, clear up something, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, in contemporary times, let me put it this way. People themselves, can they necessarily be tricksters in the sense where, you know, you're like, that George Bush, he's a trickster? Or is it more just like they either are influenced by the trickster energy or actually are conscious of it and using it for their own means? Well, you know, that's a really good question, Tim. I, I really, I think both. Um, I, you know, there are certain researchers out there that have been kind of, I think, getting a sense that there is like a, a, a ruling cabal on the planet. And, you know, the people, you know, people like David Icke that think that it's the House of Windsor that's shape-shifting reptilians. And we'll, we'll get into the concept of shape-shifting, which is very, very important in my equation. But, you know, I think what they're picking up on is not so much a a nuts and bolts sort of um, visceral um, trickster agenda. I, I I think that the agenda is more subtle than that. 
I think that people like Bernie Madoff, who's able to trick $60 billion out of several hundred investors, would be a classic example of a human um, utilizing trickster tools and methods, but doing it in a way that's parasitic. I think the trickster is a pure force, is a symbiotic force. It works in concert with humanity. It works, it works alongside humanity, and we both sort of somehow benefit each other in a symbiotic sort of way. I think human tricksters have taken a shamanic approach and have taken trickster tactics and used trickster tools and uh, and methodologies to rip people off, basically. And, and, you know, I mean, it's like everything else in life. It's, it, it boils down to your, you know, where you draw the line in terms of, of lusting for power and lusting for, you know, and, and, and being greedy and, and, and trying to get over on people and trying to, you know, maximize your potential to the detriment of everyone else. Yeah. And unfortunately... That is the most prevalent type of trickster in our reality right now. The most visible type is a parasitic human shamanic uh, uh, trickster form, if you will. And, and unfortunately, we are dealing with that on every level of, of human culture right now. And we, you know, we live in the curse of, of the Chinese say, may you live in interesting times. It's a curse. Well, we, we're living that Chinese curse right now. And, and a lot of it has to do with humans that are utilizing trickster tools and, and methodologies. I think that they have certain knowledge about trickster tactics that most people don't have, but I don't think that they're aware that by utilizing these these um, tools and these methodologies that they're setting themselves up to be tricked. And, and I think that's really important right now. We're We're living in an age where we have these monolithic static structures that are just sitting there teetering like a house of cards waiting to be toppled. And I think it's the trickster is not going to have to exert much influence in the situation to topple the world economic system, the world political system, the clash of cultures all based on, you know, Abraham. You know, basically Abraham is responsible for for uh, the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions that are at each other's throats right now. Everything is coming to a head right now, and this this is perfect ground for the tricks to to exert that little nudge, that little push that's going to send this whole thing in a transformative uh, direction that's going to enact change that we desperately need right now. Absolutely, that's for sure. And I guess uh, to piggyback on what you're saying here, let's sort of revisit 2,000 years ago when the religions sort of took over, you know, uh, the world, if you will, uh, or the world mindset, for lack of a better term. And do you think how they marginalized the tricksters. Do you think that was sort of intentional or a happy accident on their part? No, I think it was intentional. The closest that the average person consciously is going to get to the trickster, uh, let's say 5,000 years ago, was sitting at the feet of the local shaman. The local shaman, uh, usually with the aid of psycho psychoactive uh, uh, plants and substances, the local shaman was an advisor to the individual and, and help them access their personal link to divinity, their personal elevator towards a higher state of awareness and being, uh, an exalted divine sort of awareness. And it's with the rise of monotheism and, well, actually it was the rise of the urban cultures um, where the shamanic traditions were then slowly replaced by a priest class. And the difference between a shaman and a priest is very simple. The shaman is your conduit, helps you facilitate, facilitates your connection with the divine. A priest is like a doorman at a club saying you can come in, you can't come in. The priest is the one that, that sort of runs the doorway 
of your connection with the divine sort of dictates, you know, through ritual and through uh, through a control structure, basically. And and the rise of organized religion, to me, is like colonizing spirit. Prior to this, each person had a personal responsibility uh, to establish a connection with the divine. When you colonize spirit, it becomes a collective thing, which then is a perfect uh, mechanism for societal control. So I, I think it was done partially by design, uh, if not mostly by design, that we had uh, a priest class arise and and marginalize the role of the shaman in culture. Well, let's talk about the shape-shifting aspect, because that seems to carry over through a lot of the different forms of the trickster. What I found interesting in the book, too, was that, like, you did profile a lot of different uh, sort of paranormal phenomena that don't necessarily fall into the classic definition of a trickster, but once you take a second look at them or sort of try to fit them within the trickster confines, they actually fit pretty nicely. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the major departure points um, that I, I took uh, liberties with. Um, the first departure point that we've already discussed is that I've refuted the, the concept of the trickster being a static, unevolving you know, unconscious sort of force or energy. And the second thing that I did was I looked at, you know, if the trickster is evolving and is becoming conscious, then I think that opens up our, the door of, of our definition a little bit. But the next thing I did in my research was I thought, well, let me look at all these trickster forms, whether they're anthropomorphized animals, whether they're the tragic hero, whether they're, you know, a shamanic trickster form. Let's look at all these various cross-cultural forms and see if there's something that is that correlates. There's a commonality between them all. And the one thing that comes through uh, fairly strongly, in my, my view, is that most of these forms have the ability to shapeshift. And once I discovered that and had that, that gestalt, that, that insight, then that totally blasted the door open, I think, for our definition. And that's what allowed me to bring in all these divergent forms that normally aren't associated with tricksters. I just looked at anything that let you know legends and myths say can can shape shift, and so that brings in all sorts of you know <laughs> yeah. UFOs and werewolves and vampires and, and fairies and all these various types of phenomenal forms that uh, have all been sort of looked at separately all through history, you know, and and so. If they all are linked by this particular correlation, then perhaps we are dealing with something that is manifesting in different guises, but there's an underlying interconnectedness between all these things, and that's what the book really is about. Right, absolutely. And I thought the one sort of entity, I guess you could say, in the book that really I thought got closest, I guess, to a stereotypical definition of the trickster, especially under the auspices of what we're talking about would be like the tulpa because that sounds like something that starts in the mind and starts in the collective unconscious or even in the community because i've heard stories of like groups of people trying to form a tulpa and then turns into like an actual physical conscious entity that can stand on its own legs for lack of a better term yeah exactly and uh there are some very interesting uh stories and accounts that are out there. There's not many, but there are some that do talk about particular uh, uh, Eastern adepts, uh, basically uh, Tibetan Buddhists are the, the main people that are expert enough to manifest a tulpa. But uh, essentially, uh, a tulpa is a manifested psychism that, that, that becomes embodied. In other words, through, through ritual and meditation and intense focus, 
there are some Tibetan uh, adepts, supposedly, that are able to manifest into reality a some sort of being, a physical being. And generally, these things were done, uh, you know, for pretty uh, self-serving, uh, you know, purposes. Uh, you know, the stories that I've heard most often are lamas manifesting um, a porter to carry his bags up the mountain to the monastery, and then once they get up to the top, he dissolves the tulpa. And so, basically, these things, I think, you know, most of my research has shown that, that these things are done in a very temporary way, or they're created uh, for temporary purposes, almost like an extra pair of hands. Yeah. But um, Alexander Neal, for instance, who was one of the first Westerners to really spend quite a bit of time in the early 20th century um, in Tibet, was able to get training to create a tulpa, and there's a fairly famous story of her creating one that then she couldn't get rid of, that it became conscious and started to cop an attitude and and, and started to, like, talk back to her and, and say, no, I'm not going to do this. And and that was one of the early things in my research that got me thinking that maybe the trickster is evolving. So, you know, that's a very, very good point. Uh, the tulpa is is a very, uh, not very many people know about tulpas uh, in the Western world. Uh, I don't think there's really that much information out there to really to find out, uh, you know, a lot about tulpas. But I was able to dig up enough material, and, and plus I do know, know folks that um, have spent a bit of time over in Tibet and uh, are aware of that, of the Tibetan Buddhist and the bone, especially the bone, the uh, pre-Buddhist belief system in Tibet, um, where these uh, these types of uh, phenomenal uh, beings uh, were fairly uh, well known and common, I think, uh, in more ancient times. Exactly. Yeah. Then, if you sort of like pull back from that, it raises the idea in my mind that you know, like the story there of your sighting of the Mash style helicopter, and again, I'm going to keep using the expression for lack of a better term, but I think it's probably the best. <laughs> it's probably going to be in keeping with the uh, trickster phenomenon. You could almost sort of speculate that maybe. You, uh, for lack of a better term, tulpified the MASH-style <laughs> helicopter. Well, uh, you know, I've actually never really entertained that as a possibility, but now that you mention it, that's, that makes sense. Um, you know, maybe it was something, maybe I was at a crucial point in my process where I needed uh, to subconsciously manifest something that would set me off on a particular direction, and, and, and that was the manifestation of that. Now, don't forget, I had five other witnesses to this helicopter. I wasn't the only one that saw it. So um, it was something that was physical. It was something. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't have that in mind. <laughs> Believe me, it was the last thing I wanted to see sitting in my underwear with a cup of coffee, <laughs> you know, scratching my head, typing my notes, you know. But, uh, yeah, I think that, that that is, you know, a very, I, I think that, that could be a very uh, serious possibility. Yeah, I'm not discounting the actual sighting. What I'm saying is that... Yeah, where did it come from? How exactly. did it get there? It man you know, I think maybe... I did the same thing. I called every airport. I called every mechanic. I did exactly what Virginia Sutherland did, and I got laughed at. Right. Like, maybe, you know, you had been thinking of the MASH-style helicopter, and maybe, perhaps, that maybe there was a need for some kind of change in the direction of what you were looking at, and those two elements come together, and the intense concentration and thought about the helicopter makes it manifest. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I haven't had, I can't really put my finger on any sort of event that's happened since then that, that, that was as obvious and dramatic as that. But if I look back at my personal process over the last, you know, 15, 17 years, I mean, that was a very key, pivotal point in my life. So, 
you know, the trickster does have a tendency to manifest at real crucial uh, conjunctions in time, uh, uh, you know, at crossroads in, uh, in, in, in the human process. And 9-11, the Roswell events, uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast, uh, I mean, you can go down the line and look at tricksterish events in history. I'm not saying that my yellow helicopter is, you know, is up there with those, but it's just <laughs> an example. It's an example of how a single event that is totally inexplicable, that obviously is not alien, uh, at least in my mind, uh, or off-planet in nature, or the causal agent isn't from off-planet, these things tend to have tremendous influence in personal lives and in culture. So, yeah, I think uh, tricksters tend to manifest at, at, at really crucial uh, junctures in, 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 you know, in, in the process. Right. Yeah, not to stay on the tulpification idea too much, but I did sort of see it then play out a little bit in the book when you talk about Gail Olson and the article she wrote about the devil sighting and how that was probably a hoax. But then next thing you know, following that, there's a whole bunch of quote-unquote real sightings of uh, this devil-like figure and sort of raises the question, if you introduce the idea into the populace, then does it all of a sudden manifest itself as a result of all these people considering it and, and, you know, being like, that could happen. And then, so, you know, to them, since that could happen, it does happen. Exactly. And that's very, very good, uh, very astute observation. The, uh, you know, the outbreak of, uh, of sightings of Old Scratch, as I call him, or the Pocky Devil, uh, back in the late 80s. And then uh, we had another outbreak in the uh, mid to late 90s. Um, that is an exact, you just hit the nail on the head. Um, the original report of a devil sighting, I think, was was fabricated. It was a hoax. There were no no witnesses were named. There was a lot of sort of urban legend, sort of tongue in cheek, sort of quality to the original news story. But then, within days, you have uh, a whole flurry of sightings that then manifest with people going on the record, people saying, you know, the fairly you know established people in the community saying, I saw this. So, yeah, I think the power of the of the human collective unconscious is immensely more powerful uh, than I think we've given it credit. And, um, you know, I've often uh, wondered if the cattle mutilation phenomenon, for, for instance, could be a manifestation of the collective understanding, you know, the collective unconscious understanding that cattle are, are, are tremendously detrimental to the, to the environment. They're the largest source of freshwater pollution, the largest source of the creation of deserts the single cause for more of our rainforest being cut down uh, to, to make room for more cattle. You know, you could go down the line on how detrimental cattle are to the environment, and perhaps the collective unconscious it, it realizes this and is manifesting cattle mutilations as a warning, almost like some form of, of stigmata uh, in the culture. Uh, I really firmly uh, sense that, you know, in the not-too-distant future, beef will be outlawed as a protein source because they're so detrimental to the planet. Um, so, I mean, you can look at this idea of, of subconscious collective manifestation of phenomenal events, and you can you can you can find it poking its head up in various places. And not enough work has been done by people looking at this. This is like an eight thousand pound gorilla that's sitting in our living rooms. It's drumming its toes on the table, and everybody is in total you know denial that it's there because they don't it's like a forest for the trees type scenario absolutely yeah yeah it reminds me of uh sort of a conversation that i had with greg bishop a while ago and i think he was 
citing, I want to say, the work of Valet, and the idea behind all this was that there's too much emphasis on taking down the report of the actual event and not enough looking at sort of what happens to the person after they've experienced right. the event. Exactly, and that's one of the things that I've, I've always felt from very early on in my process that the experiencer is more important than the experience. You don't see on the MUFON uh, report form, you know, what, what does the person feel a year later? Um, how has it changed their life? I've had ranchers who have had horrific cattle mutilation cases that feature a cult ritual sign at the, at the crime scene. Oh, geez. And it has been so horrific to them that it's totally changed their life. They've become born-again Christians. Um, I've had other events that have been so impactful on the individual that it has totally altered their lives. Now, you don't see Linda Howe going back a year later and saying, well, how do you feel now? You know, you don't see your, your standard, you know, investiga investigator with their standard uh, investigative uh, approach going back and, and actually following up in an anthropological sense, in a sociological sense. You know, how has this affected your life? So I think the bottom line is that the nuts and bolts facts of a case are interesting, and we might be able to glean some, some hard data and science out of it, but, but it's the impact and how that impact on the individual filters into the culture. Tricksters work over millennia. Very rarely does a single event have a tricksterish impact that you can look at and really cite. It's like a program, basically, that's being layered into, onto, onto culture, and, and it's the cumulative effect of these events that are then changing our thinking and creating the, the potential environment for the tricks to, to come in and really have an impact. Yeah, it's mind-blowing stuff. It's really hard to sort of wrap your mind around it a little bit. <laughs> it is, I know. Cause I tell you, you know, my, my mentor, David Perkins, who wrote the forward to all my books, actually, uh, at one point uh, I, I went out and got a big jar of ibuprofen, and I came back and, and called him up and said, Is, I don't know if I could finish this book, man. It makes my head hurt <laughs> thinking about it. And I, I was serious. I mean, I was breaking out into some really intense migraines. I mean, my first three books were journalistic. They were, you know, just, you know, create a narrative, string together a bunch of, of, of my investigative reports, and it was really easy to do. But if you get into this particular territory, boy, I'll tell you, your, your head will hurt, you know. Uh, that's why I think the book, I, I, I think I do a pretty good job of, of ratcheting down the uh, intensity and trying to make it as accessible as possible for, for, the, for the reader. Yeah, yeah. To look at, like, the UFO phenomenon within this trickster paradigm, it's maybe the idea behind it all, and this is obviously, like, speculation, but maybe it's just this collective unconscious paired in obviously with the trickster energy to inspire people to either unite as a world or to get off the planet and get out of here and go somewhere else and start leaving or to look around or something right like an evolutionary imperative to get us off planet before the sun goes supernova in a billion years exactly or something else happens you never know i'm not a big or an planet. asteroid hits yeah. right exactly yeah. um you know, I agree with that, and you know, I think that um, you know, once we um, once we realize that if a strange, phenomenal category of, of event features shape shifting, I think that that should be our clue that we might be dealing with a tricksterish form. Now, I'm not saying this is mutually exclusive. You know, we may be being visited by by ETs. We may be, uh, you know, being visited by off-planet intelligences. But I would venture to guess that they are using trickster tools and trickster tactics to enact whatever agenda that they have. Right. In other words, during the great airship wave, why would these, these robed, bearded figures asking people what time it was and then arguing with them? 
or, or asking them what the weather was going to be like the following day in Spain or some of these weird, nonsensical, tricksterish, kind of foolish, uh, you know, encounters with people. I mean, reading those uh, accounts uh, over the years, I've always wondered, what's up with that? Why are aliens still, to this day, being seen picking up flowers and rocks like they'd never seen them before? You could put something in orbit around this planet with our technology the size of a beer keg and know anything you want to know. Yeah. Why are they down using levels of medical technology that are behind where we are right now uh, in some of these abduction accounts? Uh, there's something about the whole ET UFO phenomenon that absolutely does not make sense. And I think it's tricksterism at work. And I think possibly if we are dealing with ETs, and I'm not factoring that out by any stretch, but if we are, I think that they're utilizing trickster tools and methodology to enact whatever agenda it is that they're that they're working with. Right. And when we see this kind of shape-shifting thing going on, like you said, and, and we, we see the trickster at work, the question really should change from what is that to what is that trying to make me think or what is what direction is this anomalous phenomenon, you know, pushing me in? Exactly. And how is it, how is it changing my thinking? How is it changing, how is it changing how I view my reality? Not only as it relates to the particular phenomenal event or, or type of phenomena, but how is it changing how I view my everyday reality? We have tricksterish events that happen to us uh, almost daily at all of us. Um, you know, I think synchronicity, coincidence, strange, uh, you know, just nonsensical things that happen to all of us from time to time. I think that this is, uh, it's almost like a little sort of clue uh, that we're given that, that the tricksterous force is at work in our lives. And I particularly, personally, am very, very tuned in to to uh, strange uh, coincidences and synchronicity. When these things happen, generally I, I think, all right, I'm on the right track. You know, I look at it in a positive sort of uh, proactive, uh, you know, in a positive way. But I think that's a good clue for everybody out there. When you have these types of events that happen in your life, take take ex, extra uh, notice to that and write it down. If you make a log of these tricksterous events in your life, that you'll you'll find that you'll slowly start to reveal a pattern. And uh, and I think that uh, you know this whole realm, this whole sort of approach, this whole sort of new way of looking at at, uh, at the paranormal. I think is really going to take the ball and, and move it down the field. And I think that this, you know, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm basing my work on Jung and, and Jacques Vallée and John Keel and, and uh, you, you know, W.Y. Evans White, who, uh, uh, you know, was the guy that did the, uh, the amazing work in the late 19th century looking at elemental forms in Celtic countries. And, you know, I, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, but I don't really see uh, anybody moving the ball down the field. Mac Tones was one of the bright shining lights in this whole realm of thinking. And I'm so, so sad that he passed. Um, yeah. I think he was on a very similar track that I, that I find myself on. And it's really a shame that we don't have more people that are, that are thinking outside of the box, that are using creative uh, approaches to uh, solving these wonderful mysteries that we're all interested in. Absolutely, yeah. The loss of back is going to be felt for years and, and decades to come in, in the world of esoterica. We really lost someone yep. hugely important that I think a lot of people didn't realize until it was too late this, just how impactful his work uh, was yep. going to be. The good thing, I guess you could say, about contemporary esoteric studies is that it does seem like it's changing for the better and more towards this unified field concept 
whether it's tricksters or something else, at least um, entertaining the notion of a unified field. It seems like right. back in the day it was, and still in some camps, it's like, you know, if you're into UFOs, you can't be into Bigfoot and blah, blah, right. blah. And now, <laughs> I never could understand that. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little weird, but thankfully it does seem like, you know, there's a new generation of people coming along, even if they've been doing the research for 20 years or something like that, that are starting to take a look at the whole big picture as a whole and, and really try to uh, come to some kind of unified idea about what's going on, because they've got to all be related. They have to all have some kind of connection. Well, yeah, I, 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 I have always felt that all, all you know, Ever since I was a little kid, um, I've always felt that there's something, the scientists hate to hear the word, but something magical that occurs in our reality from time to time and that pervades our existence. And if they're not connected, I would be really disappointed. Uh, I really have a sense, being out in the field for so many years and, and interviewing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and seeing how these widely varied and divergent types of phenomenal events, seeing how the impact of those experiences, um, uh, you know, how they change people or how they don't change people in some cases, to me is, is extremely important. And, you know, there's a lot of armchair theorists who read a lot of books and then and slap a bunch of stuff together. But I, I do feel that my approach is is, is grounded in, in the field. And, you know, I really have made a, a real effort to, come up with a unified field theory, if you will, that, that incorporates uh, many years of, of research and, and investigative work. And I was blessed in, or cursed, uh, depending on your perspective, uh, <laughs> to be located in a place that had such a variety of, of unusual events that occur, and uh, especially during a time period where this stuff is rampant. And, you know, I do feel myself I almost... Uh, you know, chosen in, in a way to try to come up with a way for people to look at at these things in a new and different way. And whether it has any staying power or not, I don't know. I have a feeling that the you know your rank and file ufologist types uh, with the blinders on, as you described, uh, they're not going to like to hear this. Uh, your cryptozoological people, uh, they're not going to want to want to hear this. And I, I'm just hoping my work doesn't fall through the cracks. <laughs> the trickster is very self-negating to begin with. Talking about the trickster could be even worse, you know. So. <laughs> well, I hope that's not the case. Now, I think that to uh, reference back to our, our friend Mac Tony's, you know, I, I think that your work really this year has become a meme in, unto itself. I feel like, like I said earlier, I mean, you've been doing – Tremendous esoteric research for years, but all of a sudden this trickster thing is is resonating with people in a way that you know I haven't seen in a long time uh, wow. across the board. Cool, tell them to call me. <laughs> I've been well, operating in a vacuum here, man. Oh, really? Man, you no think way. people think that? Cool. Absolutely. Well, I think it goes back to something that I was talking about uh, a while back on the show, and it ties in with the tricksters in the sense that there's been this sort of uh, gin renaissance in the last few years, where all yep. of a sudden it seemed like everybody was talking about the gin. Yeah. And in turn, you can apply that to the tricksters, where it seems like oh, also classic trickster form. Absolutely. Yeah. Not many people know about the gin. Did you know that the gin have lifespans? That they have societies? You know, this is all, of course, according to the tradition, uh, the Islamic tradition of the jinn, but, but that there's 12, you know, uh, possibly more classifications of jinn, that some, some are responsible for, for certain types of things, others are responsible for other things. Did you know that there was a court case filed um, back in May in Islamic religious court where a guy who was being plagued by, by jinn phenomena actually took the jinn to court? Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you know, if you go around the world, see, see, 
Westerners uh, tend to forget that there's a big world out there and that there's lots of other cultures that have very interesting beliefs that are very different from ours. And the belief in the jinn, uh, to me, is, is highly, highly uh, revealing about how tricksters can become a real prevalent sort of bedrock force in the thinking of a culture. And uh, the jinn, I think, is just a fascinating subject. And I really, you know, I urge all, all you listeners out there to, to do a little digging on that. And you'll just, you'll be amazed at, uh, at some of the things that are ascribed uh, in Islamic cultures to the jinn. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think uh, a lot of the listeners have been looking at it. And I think the jinn, obviously, is just an embodiment of the trickster energy. And like I said, I think you put a... Obviously, the name was already on the trickster, but you seem to have really crystallized it in a way that I haven't seen before. So that's that's exciting. And so, you know, I take my hat off to you. Thank you. Now, let me hit on some points here throughout the book that I, I picked up as I was reading it. One story, uh, and because and, we've gotten wicked meta level on this conversation so far, and I've gotten chastising emails from people who were like, more stories. So uh, I just wanted to touch on a couple of sort of those elements of the book. Um, okay. Well, there's tons of those. I know. There's a ton of stories, and there's so many different creatures, for lack of a better term, and entities and stuff, that if you're looking for a cool alias, you'll be able to find one in here, because, like, yeah. I found, like, seven different secret aliases I'm going to steal now from your book, Then I'm, you know, I'm going to name myself, uh, Eshu Allegra, or something like that. Yeah, there you go. Well, the one story that sort of, uh, tweaked me out a little bit, and I thought was interesting, and I, obviously, you've done a lot of work, uh, looking at the cattle mutilations, and that was this story of how you went to check out a cattle mutilation, and then all the other cattle that were there, like, oh, yeah. formed oh, some kind of weird prayer circle around their yep. deceased yep. brethren. That was my first real, real-time on, on the ground case. Uh, the yellow helicopter uh, event, you know, happened 13 years before I went and interviewed the family. Um, but, but that particular case, which just happened uh, a couple, three months later, was my first actually uh, on the on the ground case. I was interviewing a rancher. Um, that day, videotaping an interview. He had lost 49 head of cattle in uh, two weeks back in uh, 75 in the fall. Yikes. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, a major cover-up on an uh, uh, absolute riveting, amazing case. Um, and as I was in the middle of the interview, his phone rang. And so I had to pause the tape, and he picks up the phone, and his eyes got big, and he, he put the phone down and said, my nephew just called and said he had a fresh cattle mutilation last night. Do you want to go see it? And, you know, what am I going to say? No, you know. <laughs> so, you know, we jumped in, and there was uh, three or four of us, and we jumped in, uh, in in our cars and raced over there. And sure enough, there's, uh, you know, one of his prized breeding cows was lying under a tree near a creek. The placenta was right nearby. Uh, it had just given birth to a calf uh, a number of hours before it was mutilated. The calf was fine, um, wasn't touched. Uh, the placenta was still there. And this animal was, you know, really graphically disfigured. Its its uh, bag would, had been cut out. Its rear end had been cored out. Uh, it was a classic, you know, cattle mutilation case. And, uh, you know, of course, I'd been videotaping this interview and, and dashed off without grabbing my other battery. So I was running out of battery at this point. And I, I documented us collecting this weird yellowish kind of looked like orange marmalade material that had been left on the animal. We collected it, sent it off to Denver in a sealed container uh, that I put duct tape on and signed, and it arrived empty. And uh, there had been no, there was no scientific evidence that anything had ever been put in there. And I have videotape of me putting the stuff in the container. 
which is a tricksterish uh, in itself. Yeah. Um, but as we're sitting there, and my battery runs out, and uh, you know the the rest of the herd about. 50 head, maybe 60 head, whatever, had been all the way on the other side of the pasture. And at some one point, the lead bull in the herd came over and was slowly kind of inching his way over across the pasture and finally ended up, you know, near the carcass and he started sniffing it. And it raised its head in the air and let out the most mournful, it was a, it just stood the hairs up on my, on my, my, my neck. It was just so eerie sounding. And at this point, there was a number of ranchers that had come that had heard about the case and had had come to this guy's house. And so there's you know about eight or nine ranchers standing around. In in the as soon as the bull let out this this mournful moose, I call it, the rest of the herd came thundering across the pasture, you know, just shaking the ground. And then they circled around this this cow with all their heads pointing at the carcass, and then started sideways moving around in a clockwise circle, pawing at it, raising their heads, and doing the same move. It was the most eerie, spooky, uh, just, I mean, I, I wish I'd had a camera shot of all the ranchers lined up in a line with their mouths open and their eyes bugging out watching this. And I, I asked them all, I said, have you ever seen a herd or, you know, or a group of cows do this before? And they, some of them couldn't even answer. They were so freaked out. And the others said, no way, I've never seen anything like this in all my years of ranching. You know, these are all... You know, Hispanic ranchers that are probably third, fourth generation ranchers. They've been around cows, you know, since they were, you know, since they were a gleam in their daddy's eye. So, yeah, that was, uh, oh boy, um, that was another event that, that, uh, it, it just was inexplicable. Of course, I've talked to some, you know, scientists and, and behavioral folks, veterinarians and people like that, and, and mentioned the story to them. They say, oh, well, sometimes cows around blood, they'll, you know, they'll exhibit unusual behavior, but, <laughs> I, you know, no one has ever been able to adequately explain, at least in my mind, uh, explain that event. It was very, very eerie. Yeah, it's a weird story. That's a, that's a spooky one. I'm sure you know, NBC announced they're pulling a plug on our show February 12th, Cap, February 12th. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Here's the amazing part. That is the exact date the Mayan calendar predicted we would go on to. <laughs> To take it back to a meta level, have you considered just sort of like the advancements in science and this whole sort of like uh, new science, for lack of a better term, uh, that sort of is going on now? And do you think it in some way we'll ever be able to sort of unlock the science behind the trickster energy in a way that, you know, will, I guess, strip it of its paranormal mystique so it's more like people are just like, you know, well, that's that's what happens when – Eight people think of this on a full moon on a Thursday, it'll manifest. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I, I think we're a long way from that. Um, I think just to get people to look at this as a viable explanation or an attempt at an explanation is, I mean, you know, we may see that uh, in our lifetimes, but in terms of coming up with some sort of computer program that's going to model uh, the trickster and look for particular trends and patterns and uh, be able to be predictive uh, in this regard, you know, you'd have to have a really talented software programmer and just copious amounts of, of real quality data in order to do that. I, I don't, you know, I don't see us gathering the type of data that would create a database that would allow us to do that. What I'm trying to do in the San Luis Valley by putting blinders on and only looking at that particular uh, bioregion 
and, and looking at everything that happens there, I think that that's a good first step. But we need people all over the world doing this in, in portal areas, hotspot areas around the world, uh, amassing, you know, databases that are qualified, that are viable. I'm sure a lot of my data is skewed. I mean, garbage in, garbage out, you know. So I think by its very nature, the trickster is like the, the title of Chapter Zero in my book. It's like trying to trap mercury. It's virtually impossible to pin the trickster down. And I think that this is what, this is the beauty of, of, of the trickster force. It is designed to not be able to be pinned down and, and to be, you know, to be in a place to be, start to become predictive. I think that this may change. We might have slowly, uh, have a chance to do this, but I think we're a long way from really <laughs> actualizing that particular potential. I really do. It's, yeah. uh, it, 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 it's almost inconceivable to me, but hey, it would be great if we could, you know. I mean, we got the computing power to do it. It's just a matter of, you know, the data that you input to, to come up with your, with your modeling. Exactly, yeah. And it just, it may be, like you said, impossible. You know, there's theories on how the universe was created, but they still don't know who actually set it all into motion kind of thing, where, right. you know, we may be able to realize that certain things manifest at certain times, but we have no idea, we may not ever be able to figure out what it is that's actually creating the manifestations, or, you know what I mean? That's kind of a right. heady <laughs> Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like but, trying to predict where UFOs are going to occur. It's virtually impossible. I do think that our best chance um, would be to concentrate on documented uh, haunted sites. I think haunted sites are our are, are most direct link to actually creating a predictive model for tricksterism. And that would be a microcosmic um, experiment, if you will. But as above, so below. If you're able to figure it out, let's say, at uh, the Sally House in Kansas or, or uh, you know, the, the Bell Witch Cavern or, or wherever, Waverly in, in Kentucky, if you can figure out some sort of patterning um, to the um, phenomenal events there, then possibly you might be able to overlay that onto a bigger picture. But it's a, it, it would be a monumental task. And uh, I think more people need to get into the mindset to even entertain the possibility that there is interrelatedness between all these things. So I think that's our major hurdle right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to take another, like, generation of researchers and stuff to really sort of push that forward as the main way of doing things as opposed to the nuts and bolts uh, specialized Right. What did it do? What color was it? How long did you see it? You know, uh, were you able to go up and kick the tires? You know, exactly. Um, yeah, that mindset is is outmoded. Obviously, looking at ufology as an example, I mean, we've been you know, the wheel of ufology has flown off the vehicle decades ago, mm -hmm. and is down in some canyon somewhere. We have not progressed hardly an inch in our understanding of the, U the UFO phenomenon in 60 years since the modern age uh, commenced in 47. There is not one shred of evidence, scientific hard evidence, to suggest that we are being visited by extraterrestrials. I'm not saying that's not a possibility. I'm not factoring it out. But how long is it going to take for people to realize that we have been going about it in all the wrong ways? We are no closer to any answers than we were 60 years ago. How much longer do people have to go down them, that particular cul-de-sac before they realize that we got to get out of the box and start getting creative with our thinking? That's If people accuse me of one thing, if they accuse me of being an out-of-the-box creative thinker, that's the one thing that I would be most uh, proud of. And uh, that's what I've attempted to do with this particular approach. And I hope that it inspires the younger generation. I think 
people wonder why when they go to a UFO conference that the average age is in the mid-60s. You know, it's because the kids all know that there's something going on, and it's, like, not a big deal to them, and and they just, like, are kind of accepting of it. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, turn on Star Wars. You'll see tons of aliens, you know. It's not a big deal to, to, to kids. If you were growing up in the 50s and, you know, you saw, you know, waves of UFOs over the U.S. Capitol, I mean, and stuff like that had never happened before that you knew of. I mean, that, that's pretty impressive stuff. But kids nowadays, they, they, you know, they're too busy texting, you know, getting on with their friends and, and doing all this stuff. Um, when the house of cards uh, of their culture comes crashing down around their ears, I, I would hope that they would think that maybe that there was some underlying force that was involved in this and not just greed and and you know absolute power corrupting absolutely you know i mean the kids are pretty jaded nowadays but I, I would hope that they would try to uh to look for something deeper some deeper meaning behind the events that are occurring right now and, and will be occurring the next few years believe me absolutely yeah the fear is that it's going to be a misplaced attribution and you know that they'll think it was just god or something like that without actually doing any deeper thinking about it yeah well that's the easy way out you know we've been programmed to uh have our cultural systems do do all our thinking for us and uh unfortunately science has become marginalized we're seeing a tremendous resurgence of interest in magic and the new age and all these very antithetic you know the antithesis of science we've been seeing a real rise in in interest in these subjects because science has become so ivory towerish and is so like removed from the average person uh and and when when science and rational uh, objective thinking becomes so far removed from the culture then the culture tends to revert to irrational magical thinking and all the things that scientists hate and so at some point you're going to see a melding of spirituality and science uh, it's it's unavoidable. We're going to be seeing metaphysics and and science uh, slowly start to melt. I mean, if you ask your average scientist to define consciousness for you, uh, do that next time you meet a PhD scientist. Say, well, you know, you're a smart guy. Define consciousness for me, and uh, I'd be really interested to to hear what 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 that explanation would be. They can't define consciousness. You know why? Because it takes consciousness to define consciousness. Mm. So you're 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 in this weird sort of hall of mirrors with a quicksand floor, and uh, how can you define something with the very thing that it takes to define it, when that's what it is that you're trying to define? So right. uh, you know, there's the 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 trickster operates in this nether world. It's called the 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 world of liminality. The liminal world is like standing on the threshold of a door, and you're half in and half out of the room, and it's that step either way into the room or out of the room, that's the trickster force. I often equate the trickster force as being the spark that changes the one to a zero or the zero to a one in binary code. The trickster is what creates the energy and the force for change. And uh, from one thing state or, or like in binary code from a zero to a one, I mean, that is the trickster in its most base form. Yeah. And, and to speak to the idea of like the melding of metaphysics and science, I think maybe not to get too conspiratorial, but I think maybe that happened or has been happening over the last, you know, since World War II, let's say. And the problem is that the people who recognized the spark of the trickster are keeping it to themselves and not sharing that change with the rest of us. Right. They're utilizing it. They're, they're formulating tools and methodology to, uh, you know, enact agendas of greed and, and control. Yeah. 
I mean, that's look at look at uh, the political system. I mean, you know, you have corporations that are running roughshod over the democratic process, and you know, without going into a political dissertation here, I hate to tell tell everybody, but we're living in a rapidly emerging fascist state. I mean, you know, when the corporations run everything basically through proxies and in government, then by a literal definition, that's fascism. So all this stuff's coming to a head, Tim. Um, it's a house of cards. It's sitting there teetering. I just hope all the little guys that get squashed by those cards are, are going to be okay uh, with it because it's 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 coming. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody definitely feels like something's coming down the line. So we'll see what it is, I guess. And if, if <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> if it'll help those of us who deserve it, or if it's going to be another football that's intercepted by the powers that be and uh, taking it in for a touchdown. As long as it wasn't Tom, Tom Brady throwing the pass, right? That's right, absolutely. <laughs> to go back to the metaphysics and science, you kind of, uh, in the book, you, you talk about Jack Parsons. He's sort of like the embodiment of what I was thinking about. It was also like the Nazi well, yeah. bell idea, you know. Like, I mean, I think there are people within the power structure who recognize that you can kind of combine this trickster energy with, with uh, the physical world or something, or the scientific world, right? Well, that's the melding of occult of, of occult ritual and, and occult knowledge and, and occult science, if you will, with uh, nuts and bolts uh, Newtonian or now you know uh, quantum physics uh, science, uh, quantum-based science. Uh, Jack Parsons was a very enigmatic character, a very fascinating guy. Um, Alistair Crowley was another one who uh, was very, very uh, involved in in uh, programming through ritual, through ceremony, uh, ancient knowledge into modern situations. He was one of the, the ultimate tricksters of the of the Victorian age. He was one of the people that helped topple the Victorian age. And uh, Parsons, of course, was a, a, an aficionado of Crowley's work. And, uh, you know, I've often wondered uh, when L. Ron Hubbard, who started Scientology, and Jack Parsons went out into the uh, into the California desert in 1946 and did the Babylon working. I've often wondered if they did create a rent in uh, in reality and possibly were somehow involved in the ushering in of the modern age of ufology. You know, if you do a little research on the Babylon working and 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 in terms of Crowley in 1919 doing the Alamancha working, where he manifested what we have as our first uh, archetypal image of a gray alien, uh, who he called Lamb. Uh, if you look at some of these key figures uh, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, and some of the work that they did, you see the, the, the reverberations uh, that seem to have kind of emanated out from those events, you know, for the last 100, 100 plus years. And, uh, you know, I think that occult knowledge um, is being utilized by certain aspects of the controlling power structure on this planet. It's not by accident that Stanley Kubrick had uh, occult ritual sexual magic uh, in his last movie that uh, actually you know was completed for him after he kind of inexplicably died before it was finished. Um, if you look at Eyes Wide Shut and look at some of the the, the hints and allegations and and uh, innuendo that Kubrick uh, had put into that movie in terms of a ruling cabal enacting, you know, Black Tantra and, and, and other very powerful magical ritual acts, uh, you know, it's very easy for your mind to, you know, start to jump to some conclusions. And, you know, if anybody out there that's done any amount of research on uh, on some of the 
proclivities of the uh, you know the top two percent that that control ninety percent of their wealth, um, they do tend to be very occult tinged and uh, very involved in secret societies and and, and groups of of people that uh, you know there's hints and allegations of of hidden occult knowledge. Uh, of course, the Illuminati you know come to mind obviously as a pop culture version of that. Um, just look at Bohemian Grove. I mean, where was George W. Bush the night before he accepted his party's nomination to be president in 1999? Where was he the night before that, before the uh, uh, Republican National Convention, uh, the Wednesday or Thursday night when he accepted the nomination? He was at Bohemian Grove in a, in a toga, uh, seeing who could pee the farthest with his, uh, you know, his buddies in the uh, state park in Northern California <laughs> that's been meeting every year for the last 120-something years. 130 years, uh, in front of a 50-foot stone owl, uh, you know, doing uh, the cremation of care ritual and, you know, the amplified sounds of someone being burnt to death and incantations and uh, peeing contests in the woods and stuff. There is an element of occult um, knowledge that is being hidden from the common person um, that is, I think, very prevalent in the uh, upper echelons of power in this uh, in this planet. Right, right, absolutely. And like... Uh... I was talking to Jim Mars for our season premiere, and he was talking about how, you know, NASA uh, schedules a lot of their flights and stuff around the astrological calendar, and, yep. you know, it doesn't really, at the point he made was, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not, what matters they is do. that they do, yeah. yeah. And they, they're the ones that have the, you know, multi-billion dollar budget, so that they have a little oomph behind their beliefs, so... You know, the average guy, uh, you know, he goes to church, puts his uh, money in the collection basket and, you know, says his prayers and, uh, you know, goes home to his to his life and, and goes back into his state of uh, semi-waking coma. And unfortunately, uh, there are movers and shakers on the planet who are highly aware and highly informed and I think in, and trained and educated in to certain hidden knowledge. And it's not an element that I really spent too much time on in my book. I do address it pretty uh, pretty directly. But um, I don't want to sound like some sort of, you know, unhinged conspiracy buff. I do have some uh, knowledge of the Western esoteric tradition. So I'm not, you know, spouting off a bunch of stuff that I don't know anything about. But at the same time, um, we all are individuals who are self-determined. We all have a tremendous amount of personal, uh, personal uh, spiritual power. And um, I think there's going to be a tipping point. A symbiotic sort of collective energy is always going to surplant and um, and to overcome a parasitic uh, agenda. And I I think that uh, to share with another human is a lot more powerful than to take from them. One sort of recurring idea was something that, that you sort of hint in the book of an interest that you have, and, and you talk about it at various points in the book, and it sounds like it's going to be something that will become a future book from you, but I wanted to explore it here today because it is in this book and, and it is sort of ties into a lot of what we're talking about, and that's just sort of the element of blood and the importance of blood to sort of like the esoteric oh, yeah. and the occult. Well, yeah. Um, you know, having uh, investigated and researched and, you know, really looked into very extensively over 200 catamulation cases, which is one of the very few blood-based paranormal phenomena, uh, phenomenon. Uh, I'm not sure is that phenomenon or phenomena in that usage. I'm not sure, but cattle mutilations are a blood-based paranormal phenomenon, and uh, there's very, very few others. Um, vampires would be the, the obvious one that come come to mind. 
And in ritual magic, uh, it doesn't matter what culture or subculture that you look at, um, especially in indigenous cultures, um, blood is the most powerful elixir uh, for ritual purposes. And um, I do have a sense that uh, uh, blood sacrifice is, uh, ritual blood sacrifice may be more important and more, um, I think, revealing in terms of looking at our motivations for warfare, for uh, imperialism. Um, we tend to have a propensity to every, you know, few decades to have to go to war with each other to spill human blood. And I have a strong suspicion that this is not by accident. It's not oil. It's not land. It's not, you know, greed over material things. I think it's a ritual occult process that is going on culturally. And I think that, that blood is a very, very important element in uh, mankind or humankind's subjugation of other humans. And, you know, I've often said for many years, I've, decades I've been saying that, you know, that cattle mutilation researchers are kind of missing the boat a little bit uh, in terms of, of looking at cattle mutilations from a purely uh, scientific point of view. I, I think that the, the whole idea of animal sacrifice, for instance, which has been going on for thousands of years, may be at the, at the root core of the cattle mutilation phenomenon. And I think that there are a small percentage of cattle mutilation cases, generally the ones at the beginning of a wave of cases, could be attributed to some form of occult ritual blood sacrifice. And, uh, you know, you, you hear rumblings every now and then, uh, you know, through, you know, certain you know, mind control victims and other people that come up with this whole idea that there's some sort of uh, ritual uh, bloodletting going on at the highest levels of society and, and the power structure. And if you do some research and you go back and look at the uh, the bloodletting that the Maya did on themselves, uh, the royalty and the priest classes, for instance, and then, of course, the, the Aztecs with a bastardized version of that Mayan practice where they would ritually sacrifice thousands of people uh, to try to get that same uh, oomph from their from their magic. This is something that is, is a real blind spot, I think, in paranormal research, and nowhere near enough work has been done looking at the role of blood in the paranormal and how this could be a real, um, I think, fruitful avenue for aspiring investigators out there. You really want a subject to dive into and, and, and uh, you know, do some creative thinking. Now, the use of blood in, as it relates to paranormal phenomena, I think, is, uh, is a real potentially fruitful uh, avenue of investigation. Absolutely, yeah. It just reminds me, too, of a lot of uh, people's thoughts and theories that are sort of whispered or mentioned in, in on the side or in the peripheral that contemporary events like 9-11 or uh, the Columbine thing or uh, the, OK, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing or something. Well, or Fort Hood last week. Exactly, are, are, are actually not exactly what we're being told they are, but are, in fact, some kind of ritual being organized by someone on a higher level. Right. Now, I don't want to get into, you know, to, to real pure speculation and conspiracy mongering by agreeing with that suggestion, but I really think that we owe it to ourselves not to uh, automatically knee-jerk factor that, that potential out. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I really, I, I, I don't think, I think it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that, that some of the most popular shows on TV are the CSI shows, which feature you know, lots of uh, post-mortem 
uh, <laughs> cases and, and, and dissecting bodies and stuff, yet they're now in the uh, in this day and age, when you have a cattle mutilation case uh, shown on TV, they fuzz out the actual uh, incision on the cow. You know, I mean, it's it's okay to to see uh, representations of dead humans on TV in a dramatic sense, but if you show a real uh, animal mutilation, you have to fuzz it out because it's too graphic. Uh, there's 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 a weird disconnect uh, in in our culture uh, when it comes to uh, blood and 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 you know how blood is viewed culturally, and uh, that's in the Western culture. Of course, you don't find this in in other cultures around the world. It's not as prevalent, but, you know, I, I really do think that, again, that this is an area that really deserves a lot more attention, a lot more, a lot more uh, research and work, and, and uh, knowing a little bit about the esoteric tradition, uh, the Western esoteric tradition, I can assure you that blood is a very important uh, element in some of the higher forms of ritual magic. Yeah, absolutely. Now, to jump back to sort of the pure trickster-level discussion, you talked about how, you know, in the past the concept behind the trickster was that it was to supply humans with technology, but now we're entering into a new phase where the humans may be supplying the tricksters with technology. Yeah, exactly. I guess yep. extrapolate a little bit more on that and, and what you think it all means and where you think like that sort of change will bring us. Well, this is where we really get into the fun stuff. Um, you know, if, if the trickster's uh, historic role that goes back thousands of years has been to supply humanity with, with technology, I mean, how much more technology do we need in the 21st century? You know, if the trickster is becoming conscious and the trickster is evolving, I don't think that the trickster is, is the force that's supplying us with technology currently. And if you look at the concept of the Internet and uh, the, the planet, the closed system as a superorganism, basically our power and communication grid and the Internet can be almost, uh, it's an analogy that I make that, that we're creating a nervous system uh, for the planet. Mm -hmm. And if we are indeed creating a nervous system for the planet and the trickster is a closed system planetary force, who's to say that the trickster is not going to turn the tables on us and we're supplying the trickster with the technology for it to manifest more fully. If you look at the Human Genome Project, the, the state-of-the-art in cloning technology, uh, the Internet, how do we know that the trickster is not somehow manifesting a, you know, a physical vessel or a physical body to, to, to physically embody and become a, a, a manifested physical being that um, that can walk around just like we can. Uh, you know, I have a strong suspicion that the trickster is already involved in the Internet, that the trickster, uh, you know, here's a little test for your, your, your listeners out there. Go ahead and put in uh, search terms in Google, Internet sentient and conscious, <laughs> And tell me what you come up with, you know. The first time I did it, my computer crashed. Now, that could have been just a coincidence. It could have been just a synchronistic event, but uh, it could have been something else. Um, there is, I think, in my mind, and, and again, this is speculation. Um, you know, I can't obviously prove this, but I have a strong suspicion that the Internet is becoming a sandbox or a playground for the trickster. And I think the trickster is going to have a field day manipulating people's uh, searches, somehow becoming involved in what sort of information gets disseminated. Um, I had a review of my book that said, Chris, don't you know that the Internet is not a good place to go and do research? Uh, there's a lot of crap out there. 
what my <laughs> reviewer forgot was that one of the things that I end the book with is that the Internet may be the playground for the trickster. The reason, One of the reasons why I use the Internet as a research tool, and I used it very carefully, I might add, is that I wanted the trickster to have the potential ability to somehow color my thinking. You know, it was it was almost a challenge. You know, okay, if the internet is is uh, the playground of the trickster, why not use the internet and invite the trickster to come play? Yeah. So, you know, when you when you talk about the state of the art and technology right now, I mean, there's all these wonderful articles on about the about CERN and the Large uh, Hadron Collider about how the boson may be coming back and sabotaging the experiments because we don't want to go there because it's coming back and and sabotaging our ability to to create it. You're getting into some really heady, heady territory with uh, some of the, the real cutting-edge technologies on the planet. And who's to say that, you know, somehow the trickster, like I said, might be able to, through, you know, human cloning and the, the Human Genome Project, somehow you manipulate events to actually manifest itself. I mean, these are, these are you know, science fiction-sounding, you know, speculations. But at the same time, if, if my theory is correct, uh, these are very real possibilities. Yeah, and there's not much you can really do about it either, I guess, from a practical point of view. <laughs> You're not going to legislate out the trickster, uh, put it that way. <laughs> All right, let me follow up on something uh, that's in the book. Uh, chances are you probably haven't heard much about it since, but you said in the book that you were going to do some follow-up, and I wanted to ask you, and maybe you could share the story, too, for folks uh, who haven't read the book yet. Obviously, they need to go out and get Stalking the Tricksters, and that's the story of some dwarves that – were running around on top of cars in a parking lot of a motel, and it was all captured actually on the security camera of, right. of the yeah. uh, of the place. And then the police took the video, and no one's some some dude talked to you that said he saw it, but otherwise, like uh, well, actually, I've I've had three people now, a fourth person has confirmed the existence of the surveillance tape. Yeah, I did a recently last spring. I did a series of interviews on an Indian reservation here in the Four Corners, and one of the things that I was up there uh, digging into was uh, Bigfoot reports, which uh, have been quite a number. And uh, I was packing up my, my gear and uh, at the hotel, and you know, this young guy, I mean, he was in his early 20s, a young Indian guy, he said, well, you know, what have you heard about the doors? Uh, you know, people have been talking about the doors. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh, that's the thing, that's the weird thing that, that's the most seen thing around here that nobody can explain. And I said, well, why don't you tell me about it? Because I, I hadn't heard any of this. And he realized he kind of made a mistake by mentioning this because, you know, I obviously hadn't heard anything about it. And I was able to get out of him that uh, these two-foot-high, um, dark, kind of hairy, dark-colored hairy dwarves are routinely seen, uh, even in the middle of town in this uh, particular Indian reservation. And that it's the most prevalent uh, unusual type of uh, phenomenon that's seen there. And uh, he even mentioned that one day in the early 90s at one of the casinos that uh, the surveillance cameras had picked up uh, surveillance footage of these dwarves bouncing from car to car out in the parking lot and putting dents in people's cars. And uh, it went into what he described as the uh, reservation police X-file and that, uh, you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And uh, I was able to, you know, find uh, a police officer and then an ex-police officer who had seen the footage. And I'm hot on the trail of uh, trying to convince, most specifically, the person that actually uh, was manning the surveillance camera setup at the time. Evidently, this person 
made a copy of the tape, so I'm, oh. I have made uh, a little headway on that, and I am trying to track this down because it could be monumental if I could uncover this. But like everything else in the realm of the trickster, you know, it's you know, it's a, a hall of mirrors with quicksand floors, you know. Exactly, uh, that's the kind of thing you'll get. Yeah. The guy will give you the video, you'll put it in, and it'll turn out to be, like, blank or something. I, you, know, you know, I, uh, I've i had two law enforcement officials uh, sign off on the story because they personally saw the, the actual tape, uh, they saw the footage. And um, I've got two other people, you know, um, that have also um, corroborated the event uh, as occurring. So, oh, no, I just mean, like, do, you know, kind of like how you put the gel in the... Uh, how you put the right in, in the canister? Yeah, it's nothing. gonna turn. Yeah, you're gonna get the tape, and it's gonna turn out it'll have like dissolved or something in the well I'm, in the process. <laughs> I'm hoping that's not the case. Cause, oh yeah, boy, I'll tell you, I've got actually got a budget. I have a producer, a video producer, that's offered a sizable amount of money uh, to the people to uh, turn over a tape like that. So there is a monetary um, inducement involved now in the process. So I'm I'm in the midst of, you know, I do these things very slowly. I don't. Um, you know, I I have a bedside manner that uh, is very methodical. Um, I've had, for instance, cattle mutilation cases where I've been told of a really riveting case with a landed, um, in one case, a landed saucer in the guy's pasture at night and uh, was told about it by a neighbor. And, um, of course, the guy didn't want anybody to know about it and just happened to tell, you know, his neighbor who was actually related to him. And uh, the guy said, hey, you know, you should talk to so-and-so because they had this incredible thing happening with a cattle case uh, that same night. And so, you know, I call him up and, and, you know, introduce myself. And, of course, you know, at that point I had some notoriety in the area and he knew exactly who I was and why I was calling. But I never asked him, you know, for any information. I just say, hey, how you doing? You know, you know, I was talking to your neighbor and, you know, he suggests I give you a call. But, uh, hey, what would you think of that? We got, you know, six inches of snow last week. And, man, the price of hay really is, you know, been... <laughs> nasty and oh I'm just calling to say hi <clears throat> see you later bye and I'd hang up a couple weeks later I call back hey I hear you know your high school is really doing good in the, in the basketball tournament and stuff and uh, what do you think that was think of the price of beef and blah 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 you know hey, it was good talking to you bye and I hang up and I'd never ask him or mention why I was calling and finally third or fourth call he just blurted out and told me the whole story so, <laughs> yeah like he's waiting for you to ask Exactly. So it's kind of a reverse psychology. So, you know, in these types of things like this footage from the res, uh, especially with Native Americans, everything is done sideways. Um, you never come out and ask exactly what it is that, that you want. That's our way of doing things. Uh, in, in indigenous cultures, everything is done by inference, by uh, innuendo, um, you know. So you can't really push. The more you push, the more resistance you'll get. So. Um, it's almost like uh, Taekwondo or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, you have to you have to have sort of a of a bedside manner that isn't really pushy. So you know, this is the process. I'm working on it, but uh, you know, I've had enough confirmation on this story to be pretty excited about it. Oh yeah. That, yeah. that 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 brings up a very interesting point. When I did my chapter on on elementals, you know, dwarves and fairies and and uh, you know trolls and the Sith and Kelpies and you know the hundreds of, of elemental forms that are found around the world. I thought the whole chapter was going to be about the Celtic countries, leprechauns, elves, and fairies and stuff. Most of the chapters, you'll, as you probably noticed, was about North American elementals. I mean, I was astounded when I started doing research on how many different types of, of small, you know, diminutive uh, beings and different types of beings have been reported in North America. 
and almost every tradition, uh, regional tradition of Indians that, that you look into, when they arrive, when they first arrive in, in their homeland where they live now, invariably when they arrive, they displace these dwarves or these elemental creatures uh, that uh, aren't happy that they're being displaced from their home. But it's amazing how many different types of elementals are in North America. I mean, I had a leprechaun sighting, uh, uh, you know, by a, a brujo in training who, while he was elk hunting. And then two weeks later, I had, in the same exact part of the mountain, I had a family doing a picnic, and they saw the same exact thing, uh, a, a, a little sunburned little dwarf with orange hair uh, and wearing green clothing and a floppy green hat. I mean, it sounds like a leprechaun to me. Yeah. I would have gone and started digging for treasure myself, but <laughs> just joking. Um, so that particular chapter uh, is an example of going into a subject and thinking that you're going to be covering one culture's version of something and realizing that your own culture, much to your surprise, has all the same elements. I mean, we have incredible stories of, of, of dwarves and, and elves. And, you know, I've had reports of trooping fairies. I've had reports of of undulating sort of animal-type forms that aren't fully uh, manifest, uh, if you will, that I call prey dragons, for lack of a better term. You know, this whole realm is just, it, it's so exciting to me to, to really do some research and find out how really, truly amazing our reality is. And, and there's a lot of information out there if people just do a little digging and do, do a little work on their own, you know. Um, I'm just eternally curious, so. There you go. And I guess... You know, the question sort of always comes up, you know, uh, because of the preconceived cultural thing with religion and stuff that this tricksterism is sort of like evil. And I think we can both agree that it's probably not necessarily evil. But what are the chances maybe that the trickster energy, for lack of a better term, has developed this consciousness and now it's kind of angry that it's become marginalized by people? Obviously, this is pure speculation, but... Right. I mean, you kind of, that's my concern, I guess you could say. Yeah, that. that's a really good good point, good question. Um, Jacques Vallée came up with a really good analogy for the UFO phenomenon. He equated it as a control system. In other words, and he equated that control system to, to being like a thermostat. And he said the thermostat, you know, is when the room gets too cold, the thermostat comes on and, and, and the heater comes on and heats the room up. And when it gets too hot, the thermostat comes on and throws the AC on. Well, if you equate that particular analogy to the trickster, what I would do is I would substitute for hot and cold. I'd say hot would be uh, evil or demonic, and cold would be angelic or spiritual or positive. And so I think we ebb and flow through history, seeing that thermostat going on and off based on how the culture needs to be brought into uh, equilibrium right at 70 degrees, if you want to use the, the temperature analogy. And so I think that what we're seeing now is we're seeing the control thermostat. Um, I think the new age could be considered that, that, that cooler uh, energy that's sort of cooling things off from, from a, a pretty dark period that we've gone through, um, I think. Uh, and again, these 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 uh, hotter, uh, more demonic sort of negative periods tend to feature a human slaughter. You know, when you have uh, millions of people dying, and uh, or you know, hundreds of thousands and even millions being killed, I think that that's that's a very evil, negative thing. And I think, like a teeter totter, you're going to have an equilibrium evolve and, and sort of manifest. And, and I think, uh, you know, like the rise of spiritualism and, and the New Age would be a good example of that. Um, 
So again, the, the trickster is like a three-year-old child that doesn't know right from wrong. So I don't think it's it's something. I don't think the trickster is consciously manifesting things in a positive or negative sense. I think humans are are doing a, a you know a pretty good job of doing that uh, on their own. Yeah. But I do sense that we're going to see a, a real ramping up of spiritual awareness of transformational thinking um, because we are heading into very hot. <laughs> a hot room right now. The thermostat's going to kick on. That AC, uh, I think, is already starting to kick on, and starting to get people to think uh, more transformationally and and to think in a, in a more positive, sort of expansive way, as opposed to you know, control, domination, bloodletting, war, all these things. You know, pestilence, all these things that uh, you know tend to drag culture backwards. Uh, so, you know, again, I don't think the trickster. People say, "Well, is the trickster evil?" And it's like, well, uh, are humans evil? Yeah, they're evil, but they're good too. Uh, it all—it's all in the eye of the beholder. Sometimes, what appears on the surface to be a, an extremely negative thing can have tremendously positive—you uh, know—a a, a tremendously positive outcome. So, I mean, it's all very subjective, and it's all very—you uh, um, know—everything is all relative. So, yeah, the trickster—you know—can manifest as a very negative thing, but generally, it has a positive outcome. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like if something bad happens to you, but then after the fact, you're like, I'm kind of glad that happened because then I wouldn't have done this, that, or the other thing. Right. If you got a car wreck on the on the way to the airport and got, you know, kind of messed up a little bit and lost your car, and then the airplane took off and crashed, I mean, you know, was the was the, the car accident a negative thing? No, it was positive. It saved your life. So, you know, I mean, there's tons of examples that you can, you know, you know, presuppose like that. I don't know. Now, I know you're sort of like, you're kind of down on the whole 2012 thing, and I, I'm of the opinion that probably nothing like crazy is going to happen, but it does kind of raise the idea that maybe that that's sort of uh, to throw it back to like the Roswell idea that, you know, it's not necessarily the event that matters, but what people feel about the event and how right. it affects their belief. Yeah. So maybe in a way, that's sort of what might be going on here with the 2012 thing, because now a lot of people are sort of getting into the paranormal and looking at all this stuff, irregardless of what happens on 2012. Right, exactly. And, you know, first of all, the, the, the cultural uh, programming that's going on around 2012 to me is, is, is quite humorous. It, you know, they say, well, the Mayan calendar is going to end and we're all going to die. It's like saying that our calendar is going to end. When does our calendar end? Our calendar doesn't end. The Mayan calendar doesn't end, or either do the other 21 Mayan calendars. There are three cycles of three different Mayan calendars that all click over, like the odometer on your car. You have this 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 clicking over into a new cycle, but it doesn't end. The Maya have predicted uh, events all the way out to, to the year 5,000-something. So the very fact that the culture is programming this thought into everybody, to me, is is really noteworthy, number one. Yeah. Uh, number two, I think, uh, remember Y2K? Oh, yeah. Well, this is Y2012K. This is the same exact thing, but it's, it's, it's different in that instead of us being worried about our computers being able to continue functioning, this is uh, worried about, you know, whether the, the planet's going to continue on and, and function. Now, at the end of the cartoon and the Baktun and, and the Zolkin, the, the long count, the end of these cycles, uh, it is, at least in two of them, we do have uh, examples in the past of these cycles ending, um, especially the, the, the 3,200-something year cycle, where there are some sort of cataclysmic events that occur. And, 
and the Maya do say, uh, the Quiche Maya at least, the Guatemala timekeepers do say that we are going to have a period that's going to be pretty uh, cataclysmic. But they don't equate any sort of positive or negative, uh, you know, subjective view on that. They, right. they just say, you know, it, it all depends. It's all in the eye of the beholder. If you think it's cataclysmic, then, boy, it's going to be cataclysmic. If you think it's transformational, it's going to be transformational. I, I just have a sense, though, that we are building up this, this riptide of expectation that could push it over the end so that it does become highly, you know, cat- catastrophic because so many people are being force-fed the view that it's going to be negative. This movie, 2012, the yeah. Roland Emmerich movie, for instance. We're being I mean, topified. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're going to manifest the yellow helicopter of catastrophe and uh, if we're not careful. Now, I prefer, you know, again, the glass isn't half full. It's not half empty. I'm going to fill it. That's, that's my approach. Um, I'm the eternal optimist. So I'm not worried about my personal safety. But when you talk to Grandfather Martin of the Hopi or if you track, uh, you know, talk to some of the Mayan timekeepers or, you know, some of the other um, elders in indigenous uh, cultures, you know, they, they kind of laugh and say, oh, you white boys, you, you, you know, you just, you, you, you jump in shadows. You think everything is going to be, you know, doom and gloom and all that. But, you, you know, you got to get your, your perspective, you know, realigned, basically. And uh, <clears throat> we are going to go through some very interesting times. I don't think all of us are going to survive those interesting times, but, you know, like everything else in life, uh, there is a certain sort of uh, predestiny, I think, involved uh, in many people's lives. There's, there's some of us that are going to be strong enough to survive the transformational changes. Others aren't going to be. Uh, in one version, I think the end of the Kali Yuga, I think they say uh, that the, the living will envy the dead. I hope it doesn't get to that, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, at the same time, when I moved to Arizona, it was at the urging of Grandfather Martin, who's one of the last traditional Hopi elders. He said, get as close to Hopi as you can uh, for these next uh, few coming years. And, hey, I, this is where I am. So <laughs> it, it kind of had a, you know, it had a little bit of an uh, impact on me. So, Yeah, exactly. I mean, you talk about the cultural programming. Uh, one sort of idea that I've been introducing to people that I talk to or on the show who are, you know, fellow travelers with you and me and into esoteric studies and esoteric research. And this kind of ties in with the idea of the power structure using the trickster energy for their own means. I sometimes am concerned that, you know, we're being set up for a a bait and switch sort of situation where nothing's, they're going to build up the expectation for 2012, nothing's going to happen. And then you and me and everybody else who's into the esoteric and paranormal are going to completely be marginalized and shit on and laughed at, sort of like the post-Y2K militia groups and the people that stock their food and stuff. Well, I've been covering my my butt on that one, I I think, pretty good. Uh, Some people aren't. Um, Yeah. I I do have a sense, you know, I mean, one possible scenario that that has been bannered about is that, uh, you know, that we're going to be seeing some sort of staged grand arrival of some sort of alien presence. Uh, you know, uh, I was in contact with Serge Manast back in the uh, early to mid-90s who came up with this whole research uh, about Project Blue Beam and, and projecting worldwide holograms in the atmosphere uh, of some sort of, uh, you know, sacred figure, Muhammad, Jesus, whatever. Uh, I don't know what they'd put up over China. Maybe, it, you know, the yen would be floating in the sky or something. Uh, but... Uh, you know, this whole idea of staging some sort of grand arrival as a way to abdicate, you know, what little power the average guy has collectively uh, to the powers that be, 
um, you know, the, the very fact that the show V has been, uh, you know, dusted off and brought out at this particular time, to me, is very uh, uh, intriguing. Um, but uh, there, we do have the technology with pulse microwaves, and, and we totally mapped, uh, you know, behavioral responses for particular frequencies and, and uh, you know, strength, signal strength uh, for microwaves. And, you know, we've, we've been doing quite a bit of uh, behavioral science uh, research over the last 30, 40 years, and, and we pretty much know how to manipulate human response and human behavior. Uh, with science, and it would not surprise me in the least if the powers that be trotted out some sort of grand arrival type scenario that then would result in abdicating all control and all power to the powers that be and uh, to save us, save us from the evil aliens, you know, that that sort of thing. Yeah. I've been seeing this real, uh, you know, this real strong sort of slant of thinking about aliens and talking about aliens and cultures as being increasingly negative. And, you know, I don't think it's the benevolent Space Brothers coming here to solve all our problems. Yeah, we could only wish. But I don't think it's evil reptoids that are going to be coming here to eat us. I think it's the powers that be that are going to be using that particular concept as a way to further solidify the amazing amount of control they already have over all of us, you know, exactly, yeah. if anything. So I wouldn't be surprised if we, if we had this big, uh, you know, slowly deflating balloon after December 21st, 2012, and, and everybody going, oh, geez, I shouldn't have sold my house. I shouldn't have, you know, <laughs> gone on that. You know, I, I know this one researcher who's going to jump off Bell Rock on 2012. It's like, you know, come on, guy, get a grip, you know. It's like, hello, you know, the great leap into the beyond. Yeah, right. Why would you even want to do that? You're going to miss out on whatever happens after Yeah, exactly. I mean, to me, um, it's just a lot of hoopla. It's Y2, you know, 2012K. I don't for a second think that the world is not going to be here the following day. John, uh, Johan Kalaman is a, you know, Mayan calendar researcher. He thinks that uh, the actual date is going to be October 10th, 2010. It all depends on when you want to equate the starting of the Gregorian calendar and how it relates to the Mayan calendar. There's some confusion as to whether Jose Arguelles and others have have come up with the right particular date. Exactly. So we don't even know what the actual date is, and and whether that date's really important or not doesn't matter. You know, and and again, I think it's a lot of – it's a lot of hot air. It's a lot of people just, you know – titillating themselves, thinking that, uh, you know, something amazing is going to happen or catastrophic, depending on your, you know, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. And and uh, I don't think anything untold is going to happen, but I do think in the near future we are going to see some cataclysmic uh, things happen on the planet. No, no two ways about it. I mean, uh, I think that's pretty much a foregone conclusion in many people's minds. All right. Now, this is sort of like the last question before the what's next for you, and it's almost an impossible question, I guess, to answer. But since you sort of put forward the idea of the trickster and technology and stuff, I guess, where do you see this all sort of heading into the future? Is the trickster going to become more, you know, more prominent in a way where, you know, it's not so much longer a force, but it becomes something that demands, you know, recognition, if, if that makes any sense to you? Or well, it the, does. It the, does make yeah. sense. I think the trickster already has demanded recognition, and I think that the – that there is a certain thin eggshell uh, part of culture that already is aware of this and is uh, placating the trickster in ways that we can't even begin to understand, I think, at this point. In other words, I think that process has already uh, is, is occurring. 
um, whether that's going to filter down into you know, the proletariat, the great unwashed masses or not, I, I think it's doubtful. I think the trickster energy, just like the UFO subject, uh, as Valet very eloquently pointed out, is prime territory for con- uh, societal control. And I, I think, if anything, the more the trickster makes itself apparent, the more the powers of be are going to try to co-opt that that uh, that re- revelation process as their own process. They're going to say, "Well, that's that's us. That's not that's not what are you talking about, trickster? Yeah, right. right, trickster. Yeah, right. Yeah, go back to Mesopotamia, dude. You know that sort of thing." So I think that if if the trickster does become more and more apparent and more prevalent, um, uh, the powers of be are going to co-opt that that. Uh, you know that that emergence uh, as a as increasing control. Yeah. Right, and the good thing I guess about the trickster energy uh, in the long run, though, will be that if they do try to do that, that hopefully it'll be a huge backfire on them. Exactly, that's that's what keeps me going forward, man. Because that's the trickster's job to topple static control systems. Right. So the more they try to marginalize the trickster energy, the more they're going to bring it down on their own heads. So, exactly. That's the. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the perfect place to uh, end the conversation yep. here on tricksters. Um, oh man, good job! You did a great job. I thank you so much for reading the book and doing your research, man. Oh no problem, dude. I love the book. I really enjoyed it quite a bit, and uh, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a while. And heard you on coast to coast, so uh, I'm well versed in in what you've been putting out there. So it's been exciting to get a chance to really explore it here and bring it to our listeners. Now, what's going on? With you, what do you have next coming down the line? I'm sure this has been an exhausting, as you said, the migraines were terrible, and, and the, it must have just been a, a war for you to put this book together. So what do you... Well, the last three months of the process were pretty pretty uh, balls to the wall, but, um, you know, I've, I've already started, uh, you know, working on, on the next book, and uh, there's so much uh, information and research and subject matter um, applications of this whole concept that I left out of the first book. Like Men in Black, for instance. Talk about a perfect connecting point between the trickster and ufology. Um, there's a bunch of areas that I, I just didn't cover. I didn't really have time. I think in this next book, I'm going to be taking this concept and uh, taking it to the next step of applying this tricksterish energy to current events, applying it to the way cultures respond to stimuli, applying it to how it, it could be potentially used as an increasing uh, solidification of control over the culture um, and, and really taking the ball and running with it in terms of applying these concepts to um, people's everyday lives and uh, also coming up with, with a real good list of, of suggestions for people um, to identify trickster energy in their lives and to, to give them maybe a little heads up on how to respond to uh, when the trickster manifest itself in your day, how to, how to respond to that, how to read the signals, how to identify them, and then what to do once you've done that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, because kind of like we were saying about the powers that be co-opting the trickster, it's coming down to the situation like uh, with UFOs where the debate nowadays seems to be is it like, is it ours or theirs? Soon it's going to have to be, you know, is that the trickster energy or is that the powers that be using trickster energy to fuck with us? Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm really going to try to do is come up with a better term than trickster because it just doesn't, it, it you know, it's a term that was uh, invented in the 1870s and it really doesn't properly define uh, what we're talking about here. It's just, it's the only convenient term that I have to use. And, and one of the things that I'm working on is scratching my head, trying to come up with a better term for it and, and to really kind of, you know, take it to the next level because trickster, uh, 
you know, it was a it was a bad metal band in the eighties. <laughs> so you know, uh, we got to take it to the next level. And I, I am going to really try to finish my redefinition by coming up with a new term. I think that's one of the things that's really on the front burner on on this project. The tough part about it is just like when you hear the word trickster, you think of an entity, and really, uh, what we've as we've discussed here today, that the the trickster is less an entity and more an energy. So it's like right you the manifestation really... of a force through personification. Yeah, exactly. Well, Christopher, I've had an amazing time talking to you. This has just been an awesome conversation. Uh, your stuff is just so thought-provoking and so groundbreaking and really uh, takes esoteric research to a whole different level that's been a lot of fun to explore with you here today. And I'm looking forward to the other stuff you're coming up with and uh, you know, being in touch with you and working with you hopefully in the future and stuff like that. Uh, well, I'm going to be out to you next, uh, your, your next uh, conference out there next October. I guess uh, John uh, Hargan's invited me out to do two presentations. <laughs> should be a good time. Should be, yeah, uh, I'm, definitely I'm, should I'm be waiting a good time. To, uh, I can't wait to meet you finally. Absolutely, yeah. It'll not be, before. <laughs> probably before, but we'll yeah. we'll see what happens. But like I said, uh, your book is just awesome, and I highly recommend folks check it out, as well as the Mysterious Valley trilogy, uh, The Mysterious Valley, Enter the Valley, and Secrets of the Mysterious Valley, and, of course, the new book, which we've been talking about here tonight, Stalking the Tricksters. Uh, they can get the autographed version of Stalking the Tricksters at your website, and a lot of people I enjoy getting signed copies, so I know that they do as well. And uh, the website is ourstrangeplanet.com. As I said earlier in our conversation, i got to take my hat off to you. This is a brave avenue to go down, uh, especially in light of the seriously rigid points of view in so many different esoteric genres that, you know, you're just whacking hornet's nests left and right with some of this stuff. <laughs> and to, to really do that takes a lot of guts because I don't know if yeah. I'd want to deal with some of these old school hardcore researchers yeah. who just can't wrap their mind around the, the trickster energy. So, like I said, hats off to you folks. Check out Stalking the Tricksters. We really barely scratched the surface of a lot of the stuff that's in the book. I mean, you're going to get an education on so many different esoteric genres that, uh, like I said, we didn't even really talk about. Skinwalkers, we didn't even touch on. Werewolves, uh, the, the elementals, there's just tons of stuff in there that, that people will, like, eat up and enjoy tremendously. So go out and pick up Stalking the Tricksters. Christopher, thanks again for coming on the show. I'm going to have to pick up the Mysterious Valley trilogy and reread it and have cool. you back on and talk about that stuff as well. Best cool. of luck in the future, my friend. Thank you so much, Tim. It was really great being on the show and having uh, such a wonderfully up-to-speed guest. You, you know, you rock, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Christopher O'Brien for a fascinating conversation. Definitely an episode that will end up in the best of BOA Audio pile for sure. You can find out more from Christopher at the website www.ourstrangeplanet.com. Go there for more information on Stalking the Tricksters as well as the Mysterious Valley Trilogy. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got two emails here this week. One's a shorty and one is a long one. The first email comes from BC, no hometown listed, merely BC. And here's what he or she has to say. Loved the new BOA audio, the one dealing with Norwegian ufology. These are my favorite shows, hearing from people that you've never heard from before. The guy from Sweden, the one from South Africa. I love hearing about these cases that are not known in the U.S. So thanks, Tim. These shows are a real treasure. Signed, BC. 
There you go. Nice, short, and sweet. Thank you for writing in, BC. Much appreciated. I'm really thrilled to hear that you enjoyed the episode. We got a lot of great feedback on the episode, so I'm very happy about that. This email is a good opportunity here for me to put out a call to action to all the great BOA Audio listeners around the world. We want more international guests. We're always interested in international guests, and we have an amazing array of international listeners. I've heard from folks all throughout Europe, all throughout Asia, in South Africa, and even a few folks in Latin America who are listening to the program. I want to hear from you folks with regards to international guests. They don't just have to be ufologists. We've got our man in Hong Kong, Damien, tracking down a Chinese ghost hunter. And I want to do more international episodes. I want to talk to more international folks. So to all the great listeners out there, the global BOA Audio audience, now's your chance to really make a mark on the program and be a part of the history of this program. Let me know what sort of esoteric experts in your countries you might be able to put me in touch with. I'll give you the contact information in just a little bit. Chances are you know how to get a hold of me already anyway. But as I said, putting out a call to action to all of our great international BOA Audio listeners and the great United States listeners who may know of or have access to thought-provoking international esoteric researchers. So thanks again, BC, for writing in. Hopefully you have planted the seed for a number of future international editions of BOA Audio. Next email is kind of a long one, so I'm going to take a deep breath and just get cooking on this one. Ironically enough, I think it does come from an international listener based on the introduction here, but I'll allow you to uh, judge for yourself on this one. It comes from Robert, no hometown listed, merely Robert, and here's what he has to say. G'day, Benal. Love your show. For my money, it's the best esoteric podcast online. One of my all-time favorite movies is Dario Argento's horror masterpiece, Suspiria. This evening, I was watching a documentary on the film, which is included as an extra in the DVD that celebrates the 25th anniversary of the film's release. Both Argento and his former wife, Daria Nicolodi, who came up with the story and wrote the bulk of the screenplay, touched on some things in the documentary which, I think, would make for a riveting edition of your show. Dario said that one of his primary inspirations for the film was the Magic Triangle, an area in Europe where France, Germany, and Switzerland intersect. He said that an Austrian philosopher called Rudolf Steiner opened the first of what was known as Waldorf schools in the region in 1919. These Waldorf schools often faced heavy criticism for allegedly encouraging Satanism. Daria related a fascinating story involving her grandmother, who was an accomplished French pianist. When her grandmother was a young girl, she took piano lessons at a presumably French music academy, but fled the school not long after upon discovering that the academy's true purpose was to teach black magic. Daria wouldn't name the academy, which makes me think that it must still exist. If indeed there are schools in Europe which teach the black arts, this raises all sorts of fascinating questions. Who attends these schools? Who teaches at them, and what exactly do they teach? What becomes of the students after they graduate? Do some of the students go on to become movers and shakers in society, using black magic to get ahead and to eliminate anybody who might stand in their way? 
are some of the former students now political leaders or celebrities? Have any of these schools' alumni ever spoken out about the satanic curricula? Do any corporations or wealthy philanthropists help fund these schools? Regards, Robert. Wow, Robert. Interesting email. Lots of food for thought there. I'm fascinated by this. I'm going to look into the film Suspiria. Maybe try and get my hands on that documentary that came with the DVD. And try and find out a little more about this whole story you've relayed to us. Um, you know, I was blown away by this email. That's why we're including it here at the end of the show. Because it's compelling information that really uh, leaves me in a quandary as far as what to do with it next. I'm going to look into the Waldorf School conspiracy, for lack of a better term, and try and find out more information about it and put out, a, I guess you could say, another call to action to the BOA Audio listeners here. If anyone knows more about this information and this story, to pass it along to me and we'll do a full investigation of it and hopefully put together an episode of BOA Audio that will explore this Waldorf School Satanism angle because it is really some remarkable stuff. So thank you so much for writing in. Thank you for sharing this information. Tons of stuff here that I never would have heard about and never would have even considered for a future edition of BOA Audio, but now it is firmly on my radar. So thank you for writing in, Robert, and thank you once again for writing in, BC. Awesome stuff from both of our great BOA Audio listeners who wrote in this week. More stuff coming down the pipeline for you in future editions of BOA Audio listener feedback. As always, we want to hear from you outstanding folks listening to the program. I know you're still tuning in here at the end of the show, and perhaps you want to send us an email with your thoughts on the latest program, Season 5 so far, how it's shaping up, BOA Audio in general, positive stuff, negative stuff, if you want to, constructive criticism, I'm open to hearing all of it, and I want to hear from all the great BOA Audio listeners. How do you get in touch with me? That's simple. There's three methods. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. That's one of the easiest ways. Or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. And the third way is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com, or just go to Banal America and click the forum button. That'll take you to the US of E. Those are the three methods, email, contact button, and forum. Any of those will put your correspondence into my hands. You can also go to Facebook or MySpace or Twitter. I'm on all those social networking sites as well. Lots of ways to get in touch with me if you have something to say about the program or the website. I'm all ears. I want to hear it, folks. So get in touch with me if you have some input on the BOA franchise. Up next, it's the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to roll through the list of the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna. Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolan, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. The new wave of columns from the BOA staff has continued unabated here in 2010. Let me give you a little thumbnail look at what we've got at BOA since the last edition of Banal of America Audio. 
the day after we posted our Norwegian ufology episode, Marla Pena stepped up to the plate with another great piece from her titled Disclosure, looking at the problems of the exopolitical field and the disclosure movement. Thought-provoking stuff from Marla Pena. You definitely want to check that out under the column title Shadow of the Shinigami. Then on Friday, we posted an all-new Medusa's Ladder from Rochelle Hawks, Book Considerations for Your Esoteric Library. I really enjoyed this one quite a bit. Chances are it lit a fuse or two for future editions of VOA Audio. Definitely a piece you want to check out if you're a frequent reader of esoteric books. Then on Monday, we posted an all-new Esotericana from Tina Senna. This time around, titled Dead Rising, and she looks at ghosts, ghost hunting, the whole ghostly phenomenon really takes us off the beaten path once again at Benal of America. Fantastic stuff from Tina Senna, that's Esotericana, under the title Dead Rising. And the last column we've posted up until today is The End is Near. Leslie's Grey Matters looks at the final season of Lost. Definitely want to check that out at Benal of America as well. So we've got Shadow of the Shinigami by Marla Pena, titled Disclosure. Then Medusa's Ladder by Rochelle Hawks, Book Considerations for Your Esoteric Library. Tina Senna's Esotericana, titled Dead Rising. And Leslie's Gray Matters, The End is Near. Plus on top of all that, if you need a little humor, you need a little chuckle, Andy Carolan's got the latest Disclosure comic titled Cyber Cafe. The creatures of the Disclosure universe having a little trouble at a cyber cafe. Definitely want to check that out. It'll give you a laugh or two. Big thanks to Andy Carolan for another outstanding contribution from him via Disclosure. So those are the columns at Been All America. We say it week in and week out, but never has it been more apparent than the last two weeks. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Just a wealth of amazing material from the BOA staff, day in and day out at BOA. I can't thank them enough for their hard work and their contributions. BenAllOfAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And now it's time once again for me to turn to you, the amazing BOA Audio listeners, and ask you to help us out here with a donation to Benalla America and BOA Audio. Last week, you heard an hour-plus conversation to Norway. Trust me, folks, that does not come cheap, not to mention these lengthy phone calls to all over the United States, week in and week out here on the program. Factor in the cost of the bandwidth for the ever-increasing listenership of Benalla America, and it really adds up, my friends. The vast majority of the expenses are paid by yours truly. A lot of folks stepped up to the plate over the holiday season. I want to thank them for helping us out in a big way. But I know there are some folks out there who have maybe procrastinated a little bit, maybe just keep putting it off. I'm asking you to help us out, make a donation to BOA and BOA Audio. No donation is too small. We really appreciate all of your donations. And now the big question is, how do you make donations? That's simple. You go to BenallAmerica.com or the BOA Audio Archive page, and you click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go 
towards Been All of America and BOA Audio to keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we're delving back into the world of cryptozoology with our guest Adam Davies, author of Extreme Expeditions. Adam was on the program last season, and I had such a great time talking to him and was so amazed by his work in 2009 that I had to have him back on BOA Audio to talk about what he has been up to in the last year. I haven't edited the episode yet, so I can't give you a blow-by-blow account of what we're going to be talking about, but I can give you a pretty good overview of what you'll be hearing next week on the show. In 2009, Adam made two major expeditions in search of mysterious cryptids. First, in January, he went to the Himalayas to do an investigation looking into the abominable snowman. This was the two-hour Monster Quest season finale that aired this past October. And then this past fall, he went back to Sumatra to look for the Orang Pendek and had probably what was the most successful trip he's ever had to Sumatra looking for evidence of this cryptid. So we're going to get down and dirty with Adam Davies on both of these trips, the journey to the Himalayas, the journey back to Sumatra. We're going to find out what it was like on the ground in these foreign lands and get some perspective on a whole number of different aspects to these extreme expeditions. Adam Davies and I hit it off so well last year. It was just like meeting up with an old friend at a local pub when he came back on the show this year. And I think folks are really going to dig it because we had such a great time talking this time around. That's next week on BOA Audio. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. Adam Davies returns to Benalla America to talk about his extreme expeditions of 2009. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio. Once again, big, big, super huge thanks to Christopher O'Brien for coming on the show, giving us so much time, and giving us so much food for thought with regards to the trickster phenomenon. Thanks to BC and Robert for writing in to this week's edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. And most of all, of course, big, big, heartfelt thanks to you, the BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. I thank you week in and week out, but I mean it. You make this gig so much fun. And I appreciate your support, your emails, your donations, your hits, your downloads, and everything else. You guys are the best. So, once again, thank you for making us a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.